Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is a compilation of two interviews I've recently done on two other shows. If you've listened to absolutely everything on this podcast feed, you'll have heard four interviews with me already. But fortunately, I think these two don't involve too much repetition, uh, and I've gotten a decent amount of positive feedback about both of them. First, I spoke with David Cadavy on his show, Love Your Work. This is a particularly personal and relaxed interview. Uh, we talk about all sorts of things, including nicotine gum, uh, plastic straw bands, uh, whether recycling really matters, uh, how many lives a doctor saves, uh, why interviews should go for at least two hours and maybe, maybe a lot longer, uh, why athletes doping could actually be good for the world, uh, and a whole bunch of uh, other fun topics. At some points, we even actually discuss effective altruism in 80,000 hours, uh, but you can easily skip through those bits if they feel too familiar to you. The second interview is with Jeremiah Johnson on the Neoliberal podcast. That starts at two hours and 15 minutes into this episode. Neoliberalism, in the sense used by the show, is uh, not the free market fundamentalism that you might associate with that term. Rather, it's a centrist or maybe even center-left view uh, that supports things like social liberalism, uh, multilateral international institutions, uh, trade, high rates of migration, uh, racial justice, um, inclusive institutions, financial redistribution, uh, prioritizing the global poor, market urbanism, and environmental sustainability. This is probably the more demanding of the two conversations, as listeners to that show are already pretty familiar with effective altruism. So we were able to jump forward to Jeremiah offering the best arguments that he could against uh, focusing on improving the long-term future of the world. Jeremiah is more of a fan of donating to evidence-backed development charities uh, recommended by GiveWell, uh, and does so himself. So I, I really appreciate him having done his homework and forcing me to do my best to explain how well my, uh, my views can stand up to the counter-arguments that he presents. It was kind of tough for me to, uh, to paint the whole picture in the half hour that we spent uh, on long-termism, uh, and I expect there's some answers in there which will be fresh even for regular listeners. Unfortunately, my audio in that interview isn't great. That's due to a recording mistake on my part, so I uh, don't blame Jeremiah for that. But that shouldn't turn anyone off listening. Just before we get to that, though, a quick final reminder about our annual impact survey, which will be closing a day after releasing this episode. For three weeks a year, we encourage our users to let us know uh, whether we've helped shift their career plans, uh, either positively or negatively. We have a lot of different projects uh, of which this podcast is just one, and it's uh, very important that we and our donors can figure out which of the things we're doing are actually helping people uh, have more impact with their career. Uh, that way we can actually scale up what's working and shrink the things that aren't. You can find the survey at 80,000hours.org survey or follow the link in the show notes. We expect it to take about three to 10 minutes to fill out. Thanks so much. And without further ado, here's me on Love Your Work. I heard something that I had never heard from a podcast guest before we began. As you said, hold on a second, I need to go get some nicotine. And uh, I got the feeling, since you're from this effective altruist community, that there was probably some really interesting <laughs> reason behind why you needed to get nicotine. And it wasn't just, oh, I'm trying to quit smoking and I needed to get some Nicorette or something. Uh, hey, David. Yeah, you're going to make me, oh, maybe us seem like real weirdos uh, straight off the bat. <laughs> That's what we're going for. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I, I haven't smoked. I'm, I'm not using nicotine gum to, to uh, quit smoking. Um, and I definitely wouldn't recommend smoking. It seems like one of the, one of the worst possible things you can do for you. But I guess I, I think of uh, nicotine as kind of uh, like coffee, um, but it has a shorter half-life. So if you chew a bit of nicotine gum, it gives you like a bit of a buzz, you know, you got more energy, a bit more focus uh, for an hour or two. 
Um, and then it has a half-life of about two hours. So like after a couple of hours, it goes away. So it's a way of kind of stimulating yourself, like giving yourself a bit more energy uh, without it interfering with your sleep uh, later on. Uh, and so for, for interviews, you know, it could be a little bit tiring uh, talking for talking for an hour or two. Um, but I want to be like, you know, uh, bring 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 my bring my A game. So okay, uh, and, and so it, does nicotine itself cause cancer? Or yeah, I think that's. I, I just haven't looked at the research on that. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a big misunderstanding. I mean, obviously, smoking is terrible for you, and I think for that reason, people kind of conflate all of the terrible effects of smoking with uh, with nicotine. Um, but I think. Uh, I, I can, we, we could, we could stick up a link to a really long review of the, the pros and cons of nicotine. And it seems like it doesn't really have that many large health effects one way or the other. Um, it's like, you know, with, with coffee, you can find like all of these like slight positive effects and slight negative effects, but I think it's kind of a wash. Um, I, I, I don't really worry about, about the health, uh, health impacts of it. I remember seeing some sort of, uh, maybe it was congressional testimony or something where somebody was saying they were from the, the cigarette industry, and they were saying it's the smoke, it's the smoke, it's not the nicotine that causes the cancer. And I mean, it was it was being um, it was on like the Daily Show or something. They were making fun of it, but but a part of my brain was like, oh, that might actually be yeah. true. I wonder. Yeah, no, I mean that's right. The, the, the nicotine is it, nicotine is very addictive, um, kind of like coffee, but maybe a little bit more so. So it's like if you know you're someone who drinks coffee yeah. every morning, then you really want to have have your coffee. And if you're someone who chews nicotine gum all the time, then you're really going to want to chew nicotine. Um, but I think huh. yeah, there's not really much, if any, evidence that nicotine does you any substantial health damage. It's, it is it's the it's the the, the fumes uh, from from the burning cigarettes that that, that does you the harm. Yeah. yeah, I know I'm very careful with with like caffeine. I've actually wasn't drinking any caffeine for a number of years, and now I'm like allowing myself like one green tea per week. And it's great, but I'm careful to reserve it for the times that I like really need it. Does it have that sort of um, habituation effect? Oh, yeah. Nicotine? So to be honest, I think if you, yeah, if you just use the same amount of nicotine or the same amount of coffee every day, then it, I don't think any of these things do anything for you in the long term because your body just completely, mm. completely adjusts. I mean, nicotine maybe because it's like gives you this kind of short um, like boost for like half an hour, an hour. I think maybe maybe that can continue to work, um, and if you like use it sparingly. But yeah, as far as I know, it seems with almost almost all drugs. It's look, I mean, uh, a lot of people I know have kind of had an interest in like, yeah, what things can you take that can in, that can improve your life? Like what, yeah, what what uh, like drugs can make you more productive or have a better life? And I think the answer is really you can't get much mileage out of any of this because the body just adjusts to uh, to almost everything. Yeah, sleep is probably the best. <laughs> yeah. Sleep and exercise and a, a, a healthy diet are probably the, the best uh, drugs there are for for that. But then, there, then there's still things you can take. Everyone, I know I take I take uh, L-theanine hmm. every once in a while for like um, just very rarely. It's it, it's just a, a uh, an amino acid. It's pretty harmless as far as I can tell. But and that synergizes really well with caffeine. It's a really good focus one. Yeah, I've heard that. Is that, that that's one that you've heard? Yeah, it's a green green tea's meant to have that, right? To, to, I think people take that with coffee if they get the jitters from coffee. Uh, I, I guess to be honest, coffee, I just caffeine, I don't find has very much effect on me. So mm. yeah. Well, supposedly they can get, uh, yeah, they can help take the edge off of caffeine. Um, I actually have never been a coffee drinker, which is ironic. <laughs> given that I live in Colombia. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're not big coffee drinkers there, right? I mean, yeah, you're, you're lucky enough to be in, in Medellin. I was uh, on, on a holiday there uh, six months ago. I, I was surprised by... That's a good point. I was yeah. surprised by how little interest the Colombians had in, in, in coffee, given how famous they are for it. 
Right. And, and I mean, because I think the majority of the really high quality coffee gets mm. exported. Yeah, I guess that, that makes sense. Was a similar sort of thing. I know I have a friend who reports on cacao production in, I can't remember what country it was in Africa. Maybe it was Ethiopia. And she was saying like, yeah, the people who are working, like yeah. collecting this cacao, don't even know what chocolate is. God. Right. It's depressing. That's... <laughs> I mean, it, I, so I studied economics, so this kind of makes sense. It's like, why would they be having gourmet chocolate? Uh, that would be odd in a way, but at the same time, it's a bit shocking to to behold. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, I mean, I think we'll get into a lot of the, the the reasons why we, I guess, we have different assumptions about the way that the world is in other places, and that shapes the way that our our behavior um, works where where we are. Uh, in, in the present time. So um, anyway, the reason why you wanted nicotine yeah. and we'll get into all this other stuff was another thing that I've never heard from a podcast guest before was that I, I made my pitch to have you on. I said, you know, it'll take you an hour or so. And you said, well, can we make it longer? <laughs> can we, we should, can we talk for at least two hours and then you attach this paper to the email and can you describe to our listeners like why uh, you were interested in having a longer conversation? Yeah, calling it a paper is generous. It's a Google, a little Google Doc that, that I wrote. So, so, so I have my own interview show, <laughs> uh, the Eighty Thousand Hours Podcast, uh, where we do yeah really long form interviews with people who we think are doing very impressive work about how they ended up doing what they're doing, you know, how exactly they make decisions about what they prioritize, and how other people can potentially contribute to solving the same problem that they're working on. Um, anyway, so. Uh, these interviews, I guess, have ranged between like one hour and four hours, uh, and we've we had about fifty episodes. So, I, I, I uh, and, and fortunately, I think uh, over the last two years, um, Apple has started allowing us to get uh, data, Texas data, on what fraction of the episodes people are actually listening to. Uh, so I can kind of see, oh, like the average person listened to forty percent of this episode, or the average person listened to sixty percent of, of this episode uh, once they started it. Um, and you can kind of see, yeah, like more entertaining, lighter-hearted episodes. People tend to finish more of them. Uh, it's, it's kind of as, as you might expect, or like things that have general interest rather than specific uh, interest. Um, but I thought, oh, you know, I should see, like, do, do, if I go longer, do, do people stop listening at some point? Do they, do they get sick of it? Because um, I, I have a kind of advisory group of 30 or 40 uh, subscribers who I, you know, poll for uh, advice on, like, who I, who I should interview and how I did in the last episode and what they want. And they basically said, just keep going. They said, go as long as you have anything interesting to say in the interview. So mm-hmm. I'll check that. Is, is this group representative? And it turns out, yeah, longer episodes, people do tune out a little bit, uh, but the effect is pretty subtle, such that I think if you wanted to maximize the listing time and you just kind of linearly extrapolated, then I'd want to do eight hour long interviews or episodes. Um, and I think it goes from something like if you have a short interview, then people finish about 60% of it. And if I have a four hour long interview, then people finish a bit over 40%. So there's, there's definitely drop off there, but, uh, given Given kind of the, the fixed costs of starting an interview at all, it's like I got to find the person. I got to wait. Uh, let's show. Let, let, <laughs> let, let's get back to that math. You were saying they'll, they'll finish about sixty percent. Was that like a one-hour interview? Yeah. Is that what you yeah. said? So that's forty minutes. And so you were saying a four-hour interview, they'll finish forty percent. Yeah, a bit and over so that. that would make that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how long would that be. So they finish. Let's see, one hour and forty minutes of a four-hour interview, okay. uh, or a, bit, a little bit over that. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, so certainly there's, there's drop off. You can kind of see that, yeah, like each extra hour, 
Um, actually, so one interesting thing was if people stuck around for two hours, then they were almost always in for the full four hours. You can kind of see the gradual drop off uh, on, on interviews. Mm. So it's like a lot of people drop off early on because they're like, oh, I'm not interested in this. I'm not finding this guest entertaining. But then uh, if they've stuck around for two hours, then basically they seem willing to go as long as the interview is going to continue. That's interesting. So, and you, you, you kind of looked at the data and saw that it wasn't necessarily because people see that it's three hours and therefore they didn't mm-hmm. listen to it. And so therefore there's a self-selection bias. You didn't see a difference between number of people listening to a, uh, an episode simply because it was one hour versus four hours. Yeah, so that I haven't analyzed and that is a potential weakness. Um, it could be that people see the interviews really long and they just don't even start it. And so you get fewer starts. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, should, I should do that. I guess I was a little bit worried that uh, like the number of people who start listening to an episode um, is really affected by whether it's kind of an entertaining general interest episode or uh, an episode that's going to go into great detail about one specific area, you know, for, for just a handful of people who really want to switch their career into, the, into, the, into that problem. Um, so there's, there's a lot of variation there. Uh, and, I, mm. and, I, and I wonder whether they might get a little bit, little bit confounded. But. I also wonder if there's any pattern between who the type of guest is that you have for one hour versus somebody you have for four hours. I mean, I, I guess I could argue that you would have somebody for four hours if they were really important and a desirable guest, but also at the same time, those people are very busy right. and maybe it's more difficult to get them for four hours. Is there any pattern there? Yeah, I kind of scanned over it and I didn't think there was that big a difference. Because as, as you say, it's like, I mean, my initial request to everyone is kind of, oh, can we set aside a three-hour block to, to, to do the interview? Um, but often, you know, if someone's really famous, if they're a big name, then they typically don't have three hours uh, spare. They, they've got a pretty packed schedule. Um, mm-hmm. so I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure whether it's the case that the, the longer interviews were with, uh, people, people who are like more famous and more likely to, to, to attract a big audience. But I guess, yeah, I mean, you're asking good follow up questions here. It's like, you've always got to be careful. It's like, you know, you got numbers on some things, but not on other stuff. And social science is complicated. Well, Cause I, this is something I'm really, th- I'm really thinking about. And I, and I mentioned like, uh, I polled my Patreon supporters about what sort of things they would like to see uh, if we had more funding. Um, would they like to see longer interviews is one of the things. And like pretty much nobody wanted that. That's what they said anyway. Mm. Uh, now, I don't know how much weight I should give that. I personally like to listen to long interviews. Mm. I do have worries about how well I can attract somebody like Seth Godin, who's, who's big in our marketing world, you know, can I get him to agree to a, a two hour interview and, and, and thing, and things like that. So it's, this is, this was very interesting to me. Um, I guess one of the things being that it sounded like the thing you were optimizing for is maximum number of minutes listens, regardless of how many people were listening. Uh, yeah, interesting. So it's, it's absolutely not the case that just, uh, I'm maximizing the number of hours listened to, um, without, without any constraints. Okay. Because, because <laughs> then I'll just do a highly, you know, a, a really entertaining comedy podcast or something like that. It's kind of given that we're going to do like serious conversations about really important issues and how people can use their careers to solve them. Uh, then maybe I want to, yeah. then, then I think for the, if for the same amount of work, I can get people to, you know, listen to a really high quality conversation for longer. Then, then that sounds pretty good to me. I guess uh, we, we only kind of cover half of the argument here. Uh, so we talked about how people don't drop off that, that sharply as the interviews get longer. But it, as, as an economist, I kind of think about this in terms of like fixed and variable costs. So you've got this kind of, to interview anyone at all, you've got this fixed cost of kind of finding them, emailing them, setting up the time. You've got to like read a bunch of their stuff so you're, you, you can ask sensible questions. Uh, and you've got to like make the connection, check the audio is good, so on and so on. It's kind of all these fixed costs. You're just going to talk to them for only like 15 minutes or half an hour. Um, and then having gone one hour, the cost of recording just a second hour or even a third hour becomes, I think, really small. 
because we're not we're not doing mm-hmm. that much detailed editing on the on the conversations. It's like we, we cut out you know answers that don't go anywhere, uh, or you know mistakes that people make. Uh, but by and large, it's pretty straightforward the, the later editing editing process. And then and then we're going to write a blog post for it. We're going to you know push it out and promote it. And that is all. That's all fixed costs. Uh, and so it just seems if if we can get you know plus fifty percent listening time, uh, just by like making the interview a bit longer, and then basically yeah, all of these fixed costs of having the interview uh, are the same. Then I think that the efficiency. We actually I, I calculated that the like hours listened per hour of my work of the second hour was like much much yes. most, much much higher. Okay, so it's almost like the profit margin right. of or the, or the time invested versus... And then I thought, well, there could be sort of a repugnant conclusion <laughs> uh, version of this where it's like you have billions of listeners, but they all listened for one second <laughs> and got no value out of it. And then I was like, well, okay, maybe that isn't the, the thing that he's trying to optimize is, yeah. is total time listening. No, I mean, so wait, wait, here's, here's another thing. So when I'm interviewing people, very often I'm interviewing people who've done other interviews. And if I'm interviewing them for an hour, I kind of have to bring listeners up to speed on just the basic argument that this person may, is making or kind of the basic thing that they're doing or the case in their book or whatever. And so if I'm interviewing them for an hour, very often I'm asking, I have to ask them very similar questions to what other people have asked them on other interviews that are already public. It's in the second and third hour that you can push forward to like the frontier of questions that they've never had to address before, like really dive down into stuff. Um, that, that isn't on the public record. So not only do I think it's kind of cheaper in terms of like listing time per hour, but I think often the second and third hour are like more informative, more valuable. Hmm. But what if you skipped over the stuff about their back? I mean, is it possible to skip over the stuff about their background or summarize it in some way that can give the listeners an idea, but then go into the, the deeper stuff? Is that yeah, possible? That is possible. So, so for example, recently I interviewed, um, Professor Cass Sunstein, uh, who wrote Nudge, who worked in the Environment Administration, very busy guy. So I asked him for three hours and he was like, well, normally I only do half hour interviews, but okay, I'll, I'll give you an hour. I'll give it that you asked for three up front. Mm. Um, and we were talking about his book, uh, how, how change happens, which is about how like social movements kind of arise fairly chaotically and surprisingly and often change society uh, very quickly and it's in unpredictable ways. Um, anyway, so. Uh, given that I only had him for an hour, I just, we, uh, my, my editor went and found a public lecture that he'd given about the book and then, and then edited it down. So it was like very tight. And then we had a kind of a 40 minute, uh, 40 minute lecture at the beginning where he explains, uh, what he's claiming in the book. And then we could jump right into kind of my follow up questions about like, you know, weaknesses and implications of the book. So yeah, it is, it, it is possible to do that. And I believe I heard you mention somewhere that also if you do this longer interview, then sort of that, if it's somebody who's been interviewed a number of times and that can kind of become the alpha interview mm. of, I don't know if that's the right term, the, like the best interview that represents that person that then gets linked to more or gets more attention. Yeah. I think, uh, from a listener's point of view, it's really nice to have just like one three hour interview that's all cohesive where they don't repeat themselves. And that kind of takes you from nothing to understanding kind of everything that you would like to know, uh, about, about that person's work or about their book and like their, their general perspective on, on the world. Um, so that's kind of ideal if, 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 if I can uh, produ- produce something like that. And then obviously, yeah, it becomes kind of, kind of the reference point for anyone who's curious about that, that public intellectual. Uh, okay. So <laughs> this would be something I continue to think about. Just, uh, thanks for bearing with me as, um, as we get into the weeds on that, because it's something that I've thought about and I would like to hear what my listeners think. Cause I have thought about, you know, maybe instead of two, one hour interviews a, a, a month, it's one, two hour interview a month. And I really get more time to, to talk to somebody because it's, it's, it's really what I prefer to listen to. And, and more and more I have, I'm learning that 
that the things that I prefer are, I, it's better for me to make those things. Yeah. But I think that a lot of this, uh, this very measured conversation that we just had about what we're optimizing for when it comes to uh, podcasts is uh, relevant to this whole idea of effective altruism, um, which is, I guess, the foundation of uh, effective altruism, or sorry, the uh, foundation of 80,000 hours. Uh, so can you give us a little bit of an introduction to what effective altruism is? Yeah, so the uh, elevator pitch of effective altruism is that it's uh, kind of the use of um, evidence and careful analysis uh, to figure out how we can do uh, the most good in the world. And then hopefully you know, following through and uh, using some of your time and money to, to actually go and do those things. Um, and I guess try, trying to be a little bit more concrete, um, effective altruism and people involved in the effective altruism community kind of aim to help people and animals or you know, sentient beings in, in the biggest way possible. You can either do that by kind of helping more people uh, or helping the same number of people in, in an even bigger way. Um, and so it kind of focuses on improving welfare and, and improving welfare you know, in, in, in a really big way. Although we're, um, people have a range of views on like, what is it to have a good life? What is it to, to have a high level of welfare? And I guess kind of some of the things that people involved in um, the EA community uh, have, have worked on with, with the goal of trying, trying to make the world a, a much better place in a really big way is kind of inventing really amazing meat substitutes so that we can get rid of factory farming and kind of the, the enormous suffering that that almost certainly entails. Um, kind of going into public service, uh, perhaps like uh, the military or, or um, political careers in order to try to lower the risk of a, of a war between the US and China, which which seems possible in the 21st century and would kind of be like one of the worst things that's that's ever happened in human history and would really take us off track um, rather than kind of continuing forward into, into into the better future that it seems like is, is possible today. Um, figuring out, or do, do, yeah, doing research, science, science research to, to figure out whether we should use, um, gene drives to just completely eliminate the, the mosquitoes that, that carry malaria and potentially just eradicate malaria from, from, from the earth using this like relatively new and, um, interesting, but possibly dangerous technology. Um, and I guess also, uh, researching how to make, uh, you know, advanced artificial intelligence, which it seems like could appear in the next few decades or the next century or two. Uh, yeah, how to make that kind of transformative AI um, safe and aligned with human goals uh, when it's actually deployed in, in important roles in society so that it does uh, what we intend rather than kind of going off the rails, which, which seems mm -hmm. like it could, could be a possibility if we, if we deploy it prematurely. And it sounds like you're talking about some things that, are, that most people probably don't think about. Um, I guess when most people think about making a difference, they might want to adopt a dog or uh, you know, walk instead of drive their car or uh, put, put the, their soda cans in recycling, uh, th things like that. Yeah. And so, it, it, I mean, the things that you just talked about are such a huge departure from, I guess, the everyday or the everyday things that people think about when they think about um, being uh, effective, I guess. is maybe Effective isn't the word that they would use, probably. Yeah, so... I guess I, I, I kind of chosen those examples as being they're kind of exciting, interesting, provocative examples of uh, really impressive things that people can do. Especially, you know, if they're you know, just graduating, they have like a lot of potential in front of them, and, and they're very ambitious about trying to change the world in, in in a really huge way. There's other things that people can do that aren't quite as you know life changing as going into the military to try to prevent a global power war. But uh, we could we can potentially get get into some of those. But I guess I I, I do encourage people. I, we tend to focus, um, our, our audience is to a significant extent, like really privileged people, uh, like really smart people who've graduated from you know, impressive universities. Uh, they have a lot of, a uh, lot of potential to, to improve the world. And often it seems like 
their lives by and large are, are going to be fine. They're not really, you know, too worried about, about their finances. They're not worried about, you know, ending up unemployed or unable to pay their bills. And I think for, for those people, uh, you know, having been so fortunate, being among the most fortunate people in the world, I think it, uh, maybe, I mean, some people might think it's a duty, uh, but at least I think it would be a very good thing for them to think about how they can give back, how they can, um, you know, help others, not just in a small way, but in like a really big way, in a, in a, in a transformative way. So it's, it's like if you get to the point where most of your problems are first world problems, maybe it's time to pick some more difficult problems to solve. Like one way of looking at it is that might, it might be your, your duty to do so. Yeah, I think if all of your problems are just first world problems, and I don't want to say like everyone who's you know, wealthy in the developed, developing world is you know, super happy, like people have mental health problems, they have like all kinds of personal issues. Uh, but, but if you think of yourself as like someone who has it really, really good, then I think you probably should think more ambitiously than just trying to recycle. <laughs> there's like, there's things you can do that are like potentially a million times more valuable than, than, than just recycling. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe we can, maybe we can get into some of those and how you might be able to, 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 to identify them. And so you work for this organization, 80,000 hours. And as I said, effective altruism is the foundation of, upon which 80,000 hours stands. Is that about right? Can you tell us about 80,000 hours? Yeah. So effective altruism is this kind of broader social movement, broader community that's focused on trying to do as much good as possible. Um, and 80,000 hours is kind of uh, one of the organizations that started around the same time as the term effective altruism was, was taking off. And we've kind of bitten off this, this one part of the problem, which is trying to figure out uh, how you can do the most good with, with your career specifically, uh, especially if um, you're kind of a graduate aged, you know, 25 to 40 who, who wants to focus really ambitiously on, on, on social impact. Although, you know, a lot of our advice is uh, relevant to, to other people. So these days, uh, yeah, we're, we're a nonprofit and we're kind of focused on trying to solve the most pressing skill bottlenecks uh, in, in, in the world's uh, most pressing problems. Um, and we kind of do this, we, we have um, the, the podcast, as we've been talking about. Uh, we've got um, a lot of research that we publish on our website, uh, 80,000hours.org. Uh, we also have a job board that you can go and check out, which lists uh, around 200 or 300 job opportunities or vacancies that are uh, open at the moment that we think would allow the right person to potentially have a, have a really big impact. And we also offer uh, like one-on-one coaching and, and headhunting for, for specific roles, um, which people can, can potentially uh, apply for online. And why the, the name 80,000 hours? Right. Yeah. So uh, we were originally called a uh, high impact uh, careers, but uh, people uh, misunderstood that as some kind of professional consulting um, headhunting uh, thing, which was, which was exactly what we, what we were not. Uh, so we changed it to 80,000 hours. And 80,000 hours is roughly the number of hours that you would work in a full-time career. So I think it's uh, 40 years times by uh, 40 hours a week for, for 50 weeks a year. Gets you, gets you to 80,000 hours over the course of your career. Kind of there's, there's two angles on that. One is that 80,000 hours is a, is a hell of a lot of time uh, for, for a single person. So it means that if you could improve kind of the effectiveness of what you were working on by just 1%, then maybe it would be worth spending 800 hours to do that. <laughs> so it kind of, it suggests that there's, there's a lot of value in thinking ahead about what, how you're going to use that, that huge resource and how you're going to use it well. Hmm. On the other hand, you could point out that 80,000 hours relative to the scale of the massive problems in the world is kind of just a drop in the ocean. Um, so you're not going to be able to solve everything. You're going to have to choose pretty judiciously, like what problem you think you want to tackle and how you think you can make the biggest contribution to, to, to solving that problem. Hmm. That's interesting to me that high impact careers didn't do very well. I mean, is it just because it was, it was attracting more people in the corporate world than it was your target of 
the recent graduate demographics? I mean, it was a name that sounded good at the time because in our head, when we think high impact, we mean high social impact. We've been doing a lot of good. But I think if you're at kind of a career fair uh, and you have high impact careers, it sounds like you're hiring for an investment bank or something like that. <laughs> that was kind of what it, what it draws to mind. Really? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Among the general population. Yeah. What do, what do investment bankers tell themselves that makes them believe that they're high impact? Oh, I think it's maybe just the vibe of high impact is kind of this like masculine, slightly aggressive uh, vibe to it. It's like, oh, you're going to like, you know, have an amazing, uh, exciting career. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess branding is difficult and that's kind of what it drew to people's minds. Impact just meaning money. Yeah, maybe. It's funny. I, I thought that people would still think of it as doing good, but I'm always really careful to to tell myself too much that I'm having an impact or that I'm doing good because I see that as a, a potential barrier to thinking about the things that I'm doing. Or Like if I feel too good about it, mm. then that can be a, a source of distortion or, or, or confusion or it's like a social desirability bias mm. thing. You mean that you can, you can feel yourself being drawn to things uh, because there, there's a certain romance associated with them perhaps uh, and it's like it's not quite justified? Or if you think that you are having an impact mm. that if you get too caught up in that identity, because I've, I've been in this world, I, I worked in, in, in uh, a green company for a while and this was a thing that I saw unfortunately a lot of the time is I didn't feel like the people that were around me were asking questions about whether mm. the thing that they were doing was actually helping, but they were spending a lot of time and energy patting themselves on the back, believing that they were doing something great. Yeah. And it rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is uh, one of the things we point out to people is uh, just because something kind of claims that it's having a social impact or just because it kind of, that, that's its branding or that's its sense doesn't mean that it necessarily is having a huge social impact. I mean, we, we kind of think that, you know, working at some nonprofits might be a hundred or a thousand times more effective uh, than working at others. In part, just because it seems like there's a lot of nonprofits that deliver um, interventions, that deliver services that don't really benefit people. Hmm. So that's kind of, kind of something you have to look out for. Uh, you, you don't want to just like, yeah, you don't want to have, just have a career that kind of looks on the surface level like it's having an impact. You really want to like dive down and, and, and double, double check that it is. Yeah, I mean, that's why I guess I was surprised that people weren't attracted to the high impact careers thing because I thought that they would have that sort of thought. But 80,000 hours, it's a, <laughs> it's a little more humble in a way um, because you're just saying that you're putting in the time and mm. you're trying. You're not necessarily making the conclusion that <laughs> you are in fact being effective, however, the effective altruism mm. that can potentially have that element of assuming that what you're doing is 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 working. Yes, uh, it's, a, it's, it's presumptuous to to some extent. Um, the effective altruism is is okay, but where where it really gets bad is if calling yourself an effective altruist because then you're really <laughs> being presumptuous that you're being effective, and perhaps you're implying that other people aren't, uh, which which isn't ideal. Um, so I, uh, I think I usually say, you know, people involved in the effective altruism community, uh, rather than effective altruists, because I don't want to, I don't want to assume that, uh, we're having an impact. That's, that's perhaps for others to judge. <laughs> yeah. It might, um, if you believe that you're an effective altruist, then maybe you won't be an effective altruist because you are allowing that to cloud your judgment in some way. Well, I mean, and altruism in itself is an, is, a is sort of a loaded concept, in itself, some some might believe that altruism doesn't actually exist because it suggests 
some sort of self-sacrifice, or I guess, how did Dawkins think about it? It was like, if this uh, survival machine, which holds these genes, is willing to sacrifice itself as a survival machine for the genes, for the sake of the genes, that was how he defined altruism, if I recall yeah. uh, correctly. But I think a lot of people think of it as like, they're sacrificing something and feeling good about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't care less whether the things that people are doing involve any sacrifice. Ideally, that involve absolutely no sacrifice. That would be much better because then there'd be more, more motivated to do it and they, they don't have to suffer any harm. So I guess yeah. maybe we should call it uh, effective helping because all that matters is kind of the help that people receive, not whether people have like paid any, any cost in order to do it. Uh, but effective helping, maybe it doesn't, doesn't sound quite as catchy to me. I think it's good. I think it's provocative. <laughs> it's just fun to, um, to dissect it, I guess. Yeah. There is this habit I think that people can fall into where they, they measure how much good they're doing by like how stressed out they are or how much they've given up, mm, how much money they've mm-hmm. given away, like, yeah, what, what sacrifices they've made. And I think that, that, that could be a big mistake, uh, because it's possible to, you know, burn yourself out, give away a lot of money and accomplish absolutely nothing really for, for, for recipients. Um, you don't really measure accomplishments by, by, by how much you sacrifice. I think the reason is that if people are, if people are judging, uh, your personality, they're judging how kind of praiseworthy you are in a sense or how virtuous you are. Then they might look at, you know, how much, how, how much, how much are they willing to burn themselves out to try to help other people? Uh, but in terms of actually, I think how morally good, uh, what you're doing is, um, that's burning yourself out is just a, a downside. It's just a cost. Mm. Uh, what, what you really should focus on is how much the beneficiaries are, are gaining from, from what you're doing. Right. So what are some of the other ways that people have mental errors in assessing whether the thing that they're doing is, is having an impact? Yeah. Interesting. I think there's a, but yeah, potentially quite, a, quite a few we can go through here. Um, I guess one is just uh, going with your gut uh, to, to too great an extent. So if you're if you were going to make a big purchase or uh, like you're going to go buy a car or a house or something like that, um, most people would go out and do quite a bit of research. They might you know get consumer reports, go and like find out which car is the best value for money. You know how safe are they? How reliable are they? That that kind of thing. Um, and that's a very very sensible thing to do. Um, even given that, um, in fact, like most cars you can buy on the market are kind of pretty good uh, because if, if they were that bad, then other people probably wouldn't have bought them and, and, and they wouldn't be available. But I think when it comes to doing good, I think people can kind of be more inclined to just like follow their gut or follow their heart, follow their instincts. Um, they don't, when people give to charity, it's relatively rare for them to do the same level of investigation, uh, or research as they would uh, do when they were buying a car or a house. They don't go, you know, you know, what exactly does this organization do? Uh, like, is there evidence that it's having an impact for beneficiaries? How much does it cost, you know, each person that they're serving? Um, that, those are the kind of questions that it would be natural to ask, I think, if people were really being analytical and, and, and sensible about it. Uh, but that's that's a relatively rare thing for people to go out and do. And people also, there's a, there's a lot of kind of cliches or, or tropes, I guess, about uh, having having an impact. Uh, like, uh, I guess, you know, education, a lot of people like focus on education and like education is the, is, is, is the root cause of like a lot of problems. And, and that's the, that's the way to make a difference. I, I hear that from many people. Um, but how many people who say that, you know, have kind of like really looked into the research on that? How many of them are looked at them? Does funding education or providing more education, like really lift people out of poverty, like more effectively than doing other things that you might do to help them? Like even just giving them cash or, you know, giving them health programs. Um, People, yeah, there's a certain uh, willingness to make like sweeping judgments or generalizations based on like not a whole lot of evidence or not a whole lot of analysis uh, that, that people have done, which, which I think is kind of an, an interesting phenomenon. And actually, I think for, for, for most, in, in most cases, funding education uh, probably is a bit, bit down the list of the most effective things that, that you can do. Well, and we've spoken to Brian Kaplan on the show before who wrote The Case Against Education. 
uh, which is a provocative and interesting book with an interesting argument. But I think this also touches on what we were talking about earlier uh, with, I mean, I, I guess our perception of people who live in a place that's, say, impoverished, um, we might think, well, we should build a school because, you know, learning happens in schools and that is education and therefore people get more jobs. When in fact, what might be happening is, is that, you know, the, the child has terrible diarrhea or, you know, has like intestinal worms and can't yeah. go to school, whether the school is outside or inside and that the giving them the worm pills might be more effective. Or um, one charity that I, I ran some numbers on, on this, the, uh, I was surprised with the Iodinize the World Foundation for like $99, you can iodinize like a thousand people mm. and that may in- improve their IQ by as much as seven points. I may be misremembering parts of this, but I, I did look at it pretty closely. Yeah. It was just one of those other like very counterintuitive things because below a certain level, you have completely different concerns. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I, I'm not an expert on global health and development, um, so I shouldn't I shouldn't speak out of turn. It's like not not, not the area that I specialized in, but I, I do know a few things about that. And and, and one is, as you say, that um, for, for lots of people in who, who are in dire poverty, it just seems a lot easier to deliver kind of health interventions that improve their capacity to absorb education and to yeah fulfill their potential. Um, things like making sure that they don't have like nutrient deficiencies or aren't going hungry all the time. Um, than it is to 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 um, deliver education at least with 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 a fixed uh, amount of money. I, I, um, back in December, I had um, Rachel Glenister, who is the chief economist at um, the Department for International Development in in the UK, um, and so she, she'd been looking at a bunch of the evidence on what um, education interventions work in the developing world. You know, countries like Kenya or or India, uh, looking at kind of the, the randomized uh, controlled trials that had been done, where you know they deliver an intervention to some schools and not to others, and then see if it improves um, student outcomes. Uh, and she said kind of the classic things that people think of when they're imagining improving education in the developing world is, um, you know, having more textbooks or having more teachers or having more, more, more physical resources. But by and large, it seems like these things have very little impact on, on educational outcomes, mm. at least given kind of potentially the, the, the bad incentives that teachers face or like just, just how bad, if the school is run really badly, then it's... Oh, give me an example of bad incentive. Oh, well, in, in a lot of countries, uh, teachers are not really... <laughs> they, they can get paid even if they don't show up. Honestly, there's a lot of like teacher absenteeism. Um, it's uh, I mean, in many of these countries, there's not a great paid profession either. But yeah, no, it's very common for kind of public servants, teachers, just to not be showing up to class a lot of the time. So that's one thing that p- people focus on is just trying to get teachers to come to class at all. Um, but mm. yeah, so teachers and uh, books cost a lot of money, uh, but it seems like in many cases they're just having no, no impact on student outcomes. But but something that seemed like it had a really huge impact was just streaming st- or like putting students into classes based on how much they know on their on their ability on the kind of their scores in uh, in tests rather than just based on their age. Um, because basically something that's going on when when you actually do get teachers into the classrooms to teach is that you just have in in these schools in India like massive range of like how much the kids are keeping up. Like some of them, you know, are reading at a very advanced level and some of them are barely able to read at all. And of course, that means that the students that can, that can barely read at all are just getting totally left behind. Um, and there's a bit of a tendency to just follow a very strict uh, curriculum uh, down to the letter based on what you're teaching uh, at that time, even if, you know, half of the, half of the class is totally disengaged because they can't follow it. Now, this is, this is extremely cost effective in a sense because just dividing, like dividing kids up into 
um, education by education level rather than age costs basically nothing. It's like not really any more expensive, but they found that the, the effect on student learning was massive, massive. Um, and that's the kind of thing. If you actually, mm. in some areas, uh, the ones that we might talk about later, it's very hard to get kind of concrete evidence on, uh, you know, exactly what's working and what, how much you're having an impact. But in some, in some other areas like global health and development, um, it's possible to run experiments. It's possible to collect uh, good data. Uh, and people have done that to a substantial degree. Um, and you can just have a lot more impact by actually kind of consulting that evidence and, and not just going with your gut, kind of thinking, thinking things through, looking at costs and, and, and weighing up benefits. So yeah, instead of going with your gut, actually doing a bit of research, you have plenty of that on 80,000hours.org, right? Yeah, .org. And it's interesting what will capture people's imaginations. Like, for example, there was this, this issue with uh, like plastic straws uh, lately. And, 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 you know, just as, as one example of something, I don't know actually the details of that because I, I didn't <laughs> look into it because I, I sort of rolled my eyes and said, okay, here we go again. Here's something that, that people are getting bent out of shape of uh, with when there's probably a lot more effective ways to, uh, to use people's time and attention. Do you have any insight into why stuff like that happens? Yeah. So I'm not an expert on environmental policy, but, but I did look into this a little bit because I, I was curious about it. And the plastic straw thing seems like a really big misfire. It seems like a, a distraction to me. It's kind of a little bit crazy. Do you understand the story better than I do? Because I, I just saw yeah. it just like as a headline or something. <laughs> so, so it's possible I'll get things wrong here. I think I only have a cursory knowledge. But I think that, um, that, that the plastic straws might have uh, been specifically of interest to people because there was a famous video of, I think, a straw being pulled out of a, a turtle uh, that had been injured by the, by the plastic in the ocean. So it's like a very emotionally mm-hmm. grabbing kind of image. Um, and, and concepts. And so people started zeroing in on, on straws specifically because that was the <laughs> rubbish that was affecting this specific um, animal. But if you kind of just look at the bigger picture and think about kind of all of the waste that we're producing, straws are just like a tiny negligible fraction of all of the, all of the plastic weight, uh, waste, even, even of the specific items. Um, and in terms of like, you know, the environmental damage done by manufacturing them, it's like negligible because they're incredibly light. Um, they're just like not a significant fraction of the environmental damage that we do as, you know, Americans or, or, or Brits. Um, and so, uh, I, and actually another thing that, that I found that, that fascinated me when, when I started looking into this is that if you live in the United States or, you know, Australia or the UK, it, these kind of developed countries have very good waste collection processes. So just the vast majority of waste that's produced gets collected in some form and ends up in landfill or, or getting recycled. Um, and so, you know, how is it that there's so much waste in the oceans then? Um, basically, it's, it's coming from kind of riverine areas and countries that don't have very good waste collection where there's not really a culture of like throwing things in the bin. Or even if you do that, there's a, there's a high risk that it won't be collected and, and taken, taken away to landfill. So just a huge amount of uh, rubbish gets uh, thrown into these rivers and, and goes out to sea. Uh, there's a bit of that in like China, although I think that's getting a lot better. Vietnam, Indonesia, India. Was it something with Starbucks or something where, where, okay, we need to stop using plastic straws in these places because were people's conclusion that, oh, then they end up in waterways and then they end up in, in the noses of turtles. And so therefore we should stop using plastic straws. Was that? Yeah. I think there was, there was a campaign about ocean waste, which then for some reason ended up really fixating on straws specifically a great deal. And so some places started to ban straws and. Companies are trying to get out ahead uh, by by getting getting rid of straws. You know, I guess you know I'm not a big straw user. For most people, they don't use straws. Although there's been like some pushback on this from people who have disabilities who are pointing out, you know, actually I really need straws because otherwise I can't drink because uh, I you know I, uh, I have like issues swallowing or, or picking things up. Um, so it's not the case that for everyone uh, straws are, are a negligible issue. Um, but but I think just the main thing is if uh, w- when I approach an issue like this with ocean waste, my initial intuition is to 
uh, like look at all of the waste in the world and then like try to figure out like where or like look at all of the waste in the ocean and figure out like where did it come from? Where did like most of this come from? Uh, and it's, mm-hmm. and if you're taking that approach, oh, I, yeah. So where did most of it come from and like what might be done to, to stop the really big classes of this? And there you would be like, well, it's because rubbish isn't being collected in big cities on rivers in India or Indonesia. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's where like most of this is coming from, things like that. And given that, you would never kind of zero in on plastic straws in developed countries, like a tiny subset of all all waste in the US in a country that doesn't actually cause that much rubbish to go out to sea anyway. So the majority of the the rubbish in, or the, (laughs) your UK-ness is is, uh, rubbing off on me. Or (laughs) actually Australian. Australian, Although I I live in London. (laughs) You live in London. Yeah, the the amount of garbage in the ocean, you're saying that the majority of it is from poor waste collection in a place like Indonesia or, or India. And actually a small fraction of it is coming from the Starbucks uh, in Manhattan yeah. or the many Starbucks in Manhattan. Right. Manhattan. right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that the data on this is, is amazing, but um, it was a, I think it was a paper in Nature that, that we can stick up a link to in, in, in the show notes that I think um, str- yeah, strongly, strongly suggested this. I mean, if you think about it, if you, yeah, if you get a Starbucks in Manhattan and then you make sure that it goes in the bin, the odds of it ending up out at sea it's just extremely, extremely low. Uh, it's like it's going to get recycled or it's going to go into landfill. So kind of you don't need to feel terribly bad about that. Um, it's, it's mm-hmm. true. I'm sure that some, some terrible people do, a, do, do a throw it into, into, the, into the water. But kind of we, we could focus on that, the littering aspect, rather than kind of getting rid of straws, straws entirely, even if like what we wanted to do is focus on, uh, on, on, on countries where, that are responsible for a relatively small fraction of, of, of the problem. I mean, I guess, yeah, so, so I, I would look at like, where, where is most of this ocean plastic coming from? And then if you're thinking, if, if it turns out that this is correct, that it's, um, places that have poor rubbish collection, uh, where people are throwing, uh, waste into, into water too often, then maybe if, if you really care about this, oh, we should send off a couple of people to become experts in waste management and then like go and try to improve the systems of waste collection in these countries. And it could be that, you know, just having 10 people do that is mm-hmm. worth a million people trying to like reduce their, their use of straws individually. But it's difficult to get support for that because of the way that the human mind works, right? We see this image and then yeah. it becomes this, this meme that gets uh, recycled over and over again till, till there's people like myself who know there's something going on with straws, but aren't even quite sure what it is and are pretty sure that it's ridiculous. And then, and then we end up talking about it on this podcast. <laughs> and then some other people are like, these guys are terrible. <laughs> They're terrible people. They want plastic straws to end up in the noses of, of sea turtles. When in fact, if you comb through things, you're likely to find that whatever action's being taken, whatever attitude people have about this thing is probably way far off base. And it's often driven by that gut feeling. Yeah. I mean, in some parts of our life, kind of we follow our intuitions, we, 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 we follow our instincts. Uh, and if you're thinking about like you know, judging someone who's in front of you, like, are they a nice person or are they not a nice person? Then, you know, humans are kind of evolved to have fairly, fairly good instincts for that. Not perfect, but they can like kind of tell if someone probably has good intentions or bad intentions, like much better than chance. But the, the modern world is just so impossibly complicated. It's like we're part of these like massive systems, like almost we understand almost none of it unless we like go and investigate it. Um, we, there's just no reason to think that kind of our involved instincts or like, yeah, the, th- the things that we've learned, the kind of instincts that we've developed from that are going to be really informative about like what actions we can take that are going to improve the world in, in the biggest way. It's just uh, it, it, in the same way that kind of people don't think that they have instincts about like which chemicals are going to cure diseases. They know that this requires, you know, expert researchers to go out and try to figure that out. And then, and then you kind of, you go with what your doctor says more than uh, what, what you, what your heart says. Um, I think, 
likewise, trying to figure out how do we make the world a better place involves uh, expertise and, and research and, and uh, analysis. Um, and I, th- I think, I think to be honest, when you point this out, almost, most people are with you, but it like, uh, it has to be drawn. Like people have to like force themselves. They have to bring it to their attention that, yeah, I really need to, I really need to think this through. Yeah. Well, it's often counterintuitive. I guess we're so often interacting with things where there is a butterfly effect that, you know, so many different levels down the chain is going to cause uh, some other thing to happen. I mean, it kind of gets to the point where the, your typical person wants to wants to just say, hey, like, this is too complicated. I can't, I can't think about this or, or, or can or even be skeptical of the experts who claim to be able to tell you whether this is this thing or that other thing is, is effective. I mean, is there anything that you can say to people like that to convince them that uh, that effective altruism ways of thinking are truly effective? So can you just ask, the, ask that question again? Uh, maybe could, could we could, yeah, could you try, try yeah, to go through sure, the sure. Is there a way that you would be able to convince somebody who was skeptical of experts um, being able to say whether something is effective or not uh, and illustrate that, yes, it is in fact more effective than your gut feeling? I don't know whether I, this is uh, too general of a question or, or not, but I can just very easily imagine, uh, even in my own mind, I can feel this, this idea of feeling so overwhelmed that you feel like there's just nothing you can do. And you know, the way the mind works, you have an emotion mm. and then you find some way of rationalizing it. So the way you might rationalize it would be like, well, these experts, these people who pr- claim to be experts on the impact of uh, plastic straws or <laughs> waste management. Well, you know, they don't actually know it's too complicated. There's, there's so much of a, a butterfly effect going on. They can't possibly know. Um, so I'm just going to just live my life and, you know, enjoy it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I've, Two things to say to that. Um, actually, maybe three. So the first one would be the world is extremely unpredictable and chaotic. Um, and kind of, I, I, uh, have more of a focus on areas that are like much harder to understand than just like waste disposal. Uh, that's, that's something where you can get like really good data. And I think I have, have a pretty good sense of what things are working and what things aren't, but, the, but it gets, it gets worse and more complicated than that. Um, but that's also kind of true of your gut. Like if, if it's, if it's true that experts can't figure, can't unravel all these chaotic implications, uh, even after, you know, spending their entire career trying to try to figure out what actions are helpful. And it seems unlikely that kind of your gut instincts are going to do that as well. Uh, so mm-hmm. that, that challenge like slightly cancels out. Um, a second thing is that, um, kind of I, so we encourage people to try to find like what specific things can they do, say with their career, or with their life that, that have the, um, the, the biggest impact. And typically I think just doing a few things that are really important, really well. Um, is a lot more effective than spreading your efforts across like lots of different areas and trying to make like tiny, tiny differences there. And so to some extent, I think if you can like nail the issue of like, I've chosen to work on a really important problem and I'm using my career to try to fix it. And to some extent, you can like relax about the other, like the other stuff that's going on. You, you can like focus on somewhere where you can, where you are in a position mm-hmm. to make a really big contribution. And then you don't have to stress about every other issue. It's like, uh, it's like the same way that, that like a surgeon doesn't also have to know, uh, you know, doesn't have to do engineering. Like each of us, to some extent, can specialize in 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 areas where we can figure out what works, um, mm. and then and then let other people handle other issues. So, by being confident that you have already allocated a huge portion of your life's resources to something that you've deemed will will be effective, then you can maybe find a little bit of peace when it comes to these other things where you worry that uh, 
you might not be re- making the right choice. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Uh, focus focus on the big picture. Focus on the important decisions. Um, I, have you heard you, you know, the eighty twenty rule? Yes. Yeah. So like eighty percent of the benefit comes from kind of twenty percent of the work. And I think it's the case that when you're trying to have a social impact, like eighty or ninety percent of the impact comes from a handful of decisions that you really want to get right, and then kind of the other the other eighty percent of questions, maybe you can like just let them slide. Don't don't, don't stress too much. You don't have to be perfect in every respect. So if somebody is looking for that most important decision that they can make to have uh, that larger impact where they can stop worrying so much about all the different minutia, what, uh, what might they do? Yeah, so I think one of the most important decisions that people make, which they often don't spend very much time on, is trying to figure out what social problem they're actually going to be aiming to solve um, in, in their career or with their donations or, or with their volunteering. Um, and, and I suspect that you know, if you choose like among the most pressing problems in the world, then you can potentially, you know, have a hundred times more impact than if you kind of stumble into working on working on something without doing any, any analysis at all. Um, and in fact, there's, there's like ways that people, I think, systematically choose to work on problems where it's not so impactful. Um, so for example, a lot of people kind of stumble into working on a social problem because other people around them uh, are working on it. And so it comes to their attention very easily or because it's kind of trendy or fashionable to, to worry about an issue and, and to get on board with that. But yeah, in, just in, in life in general, you get declining returns to putting more effort into, uh, into kind of solving a problem or kind of anything you do. That The more you do it, typically the, the, the returns decline. So it's kind of uh, the first $10,000 that you spend on a car kind of gets you most of the way there. And then spending another $10,000, the car only gets a little bit better. And then another $10,000, the, the, the returns start leveling off pretty seriously. And I think that that's how it is with solving problems in the world. Uh, the first kind of thousand people that you have focusing, focusing on it um, does a lot more good than the second thousand or, or the third thousand. So it's like mar- marginal benefit. Yeah. Right? So, so this is this is declining marginal returns to, to more effort. Oh, okay. And we think uh, that there's like mathematical theoretical modeling reasons to, to expect kind of logarithmic returns to putting more effort into solving a problem. So that is to say that kind of each doubling of the resources that you put in accomplishes about the same amount. Um, and we, and we observe this somewhat with like scientific research. It seems like each time, each doubling of scientific effort, uh, accomplishes about the same increase in, in, in progress. But of course, you know, going from 1,000 people to 2,000 people is a lot smaller than going from 2,000 people to 4,000 people or from 4,000 people to 8,000 people. But each of those increments has probably been similarly valuable. So yeah, one of the, one of the important criteria that we look for when we think about um, problems where people can have an especially large impact as one extra person working on that problem is neglectedness. We want to find things that are really important, but that like almost no one's paying attention to, hmm. because those are the places where you're going to find really low hanging fruit, uh, like really really big impact things that you can do that other people haven't already done or haven't already tried. Um, so so we're always looking for yeah low hanging fruit that, are, that that that's uh, still still being left there. So for example, my, what might be uh, issues that we kind of don't need any more people working on this problem. We have enough. Any any additional people added onto this are going to not uh, have the impact that they could just by nature of the fact that so many people are already thinking about this. Yeah. So what's a possible example? I guess, so I'm very interested in US politics and UK politics, like you know, mainstream issues about like whether the leaders we have are sensible people who are nice. <laughs> um and I think that that absolutely is an important issue, but it's also one where kind of millions, tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of people are already paying, paying attention. And if there was like something really easy that a typical person could do there, then probably it's already happened. There's kind of a lot of energy already going into that. Mm. So it's not the kind of place where you would expect to find some transformative thing that just a typical person can do that's going to make a massive impact. 
So for example, people talk about global warming a lot. Do we need more people uh, or climate change? Yeah. Do we need more people working on climate change or is, is an additional person uh, working on climate change just not going to be worth it? Yeah. So on climate change, I take kind of, I think the, the scientific consensus seems completely right. It's, it's very concerning. Um, I think it's going to be a big problem for humanity going forward. Um, and so that would seem to suggest that it'd be great to have a lot more people working on it. And indeed, I think working on climate change is a lot better than, than working on a lot of other things. I'd love, you know, I love it whenever I see like more effective government programs to, to tackle climate change. But I think, you know, if, if I was advising one person on like where they could get the biggest bang out of their career or the biggest bang out of their, out of their money, it probably wouldn't be climate change because there already are like hundreds of like billions of people potentially are worried about this. Millions of people have kind of already allocated their career to trying to tackle this problem. And by, by no means have they, uh, succeeded. And, and it's true that like, having an extra person will make, will, 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 will help to solve it. But it's not the kind of place, again, where, where you'd expect to find like amazing opportunities that uh, just no one has yet, uh, looked at. Um, because it, when there's already millions of people working on it, like having one extra person probably just doesn't make as big of a contribution as kind of finding a new area that's really important that might be of similar importance to climate change potentially, but there's only 10 or 100 people who are working on it. That's where like one incremental mm. person potentially you know, can get bigger, bigger bang out of their career. Can you think of any examples of uh, areas that might be like that, that are neglected that no people wouldn't normally think of? Yeah. So I think one that's kind of uh, medium neglected, but more neglected than, than climate change, I think. Uh, is pandemic preparedness. So, hmm. um, you know, in the past, like one of the humanity's biggest enemies, biggest threats has been new diseases that, that spread around and kill a significant fraction of the population. I think that, that the last big one was the Spanish flu after World War I, uh, which killed, um, tens of millions of people. Um, uh, it was a couple of percent of the, of the world's population at the time. Well, the Black Death was <laughs> 1300s, right? They wiped out half of Europe. Um, we haven't had something like that for a very long time. I mean, it also got like smallpox. Smallpox when, um, you know, colonists arrived in America or Australia killed like, I, I think, or like debilitated like 80% of the population or something like that, or the cocktail of diseases that they brought. I mean, who could know? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, what? Well, and there's like some reasons to think that uh, this risk is getting higher than in the past, or that there's some reasons to think that it's getting lower. So one reason to worry more is that like international transport is so fast and there's so many people flying between countries now. But if a new disease arises, it can spread to all across the world, including countries that don't have very good health systems um, within a matter of days. And then it becomes extremely hard to control. Right. Well, and it's easy to think about this as like, well, this hasn't happened yeah. um, for a long time. And so therefore, people don't think about it. Right. It's, it's, yeah. like, it's like the uh, the turkey being fed every single day uh, and thinking that humans are good. And then Thanksgiving comes and you know, it's changed, <laughs> it's changed all of yeah. a sudden. It's, it's like this black swan occur, event occurs and it, it's so catastrophic yeah. that it makes investing it worthwhile. Yeah. So in general, I'm very interested in kind of risk management and global, global risk management issues. Um, and I think there's like systematic reasons why there's amazing opportunities there. Um, and one is just that it's so hard to kind of, well, People, there's so many things going on in people's lives. Like who has time to categorize and worry like you know, appropriately about all the kind of the global threats that, that humanity faces? Um, for, for most people, it's just like too difficult to even think about it. And so what, what they, it, in order to like figure out what things to worry about, people use this heuristic called the availability uh, heuristic or availability bias. So they look at what things have happened recently and then they kind of protect against those things. And then anything that hasn't happened for a while, they kind of forget about it. Mm -hmm. um, and you notice this in, in, in government as well. So for example, in terms of, 
like uh, biological threats. The US government has been extremely focused on anthrax because there was a bunch of anthrax attacks. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was the thing that people thought of when they were worried about biological attacks. Um, and, but, but I think if you actually do the analysis, there's other things that are much more concerning, um, that just haven't happened yet. And so I think if, if you're looking for problems that are like, or like threats that are very severe that are neglected, looking for things that like could, like there's, it seems like there's a high probability that, that they could happen in future, but they haven't happened yet or haven't happened lately, or they're a new threat that has arisen that hasn't had the chance to happen yet, but probably the risk is going way up. Um, that's, that's where you can find some, some, some really juicy opportunities, I think, to do good. Hmm. Well, I would imagine, though, that if you were to find one of those areas, you might never find out whether you were actually being effective because it never happened. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, if you, succeed, yeah, if you succeed, then nothing will happen. Nothing will go wrong. Um, uh, yeah. So I guess so, some people involved in the effective altruism community, they try to have an impact by going into areas where you can get really strong evidence about what's working and what's not. So things like global health and development, where you can get a reasonable sense of how much it costs to save a life and things like that. Uh, the, 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 at least the immediate effects seem more predictable. Then there's uh, kind of another group uh, which, of which I consider myself a part, um, which tries to have an impact by going and exploring areas that like approaches and areas that seem really high leverage, where maybe people aren't going into it because they're so speculative that people who want to like be able to quantify the impact that they're having uh, are put, like tend not to go into it, and so they're and so they're very neglected. But we think like someone who's oh. uh, you know uses careful analysis, like really thinks it through and becomes uh, a, 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 an expert within that field. Can, can anticipate what things might go wrong and, and they can try to build an internal model of the world that will allow them to have some confidence about the expected impact that they're going to have. So this, this involves being willing to take a, a high, accept a high risk that you may ultimately actually not make a difference because it might just be that you spend your life kind of preparing to avert a threat that um, just because of chance, it wouldn't have happened anyway. But um, in general, I advise people to focus on um, inc- maximizing their expected impact, which is kind of like, if things go well, then how much impact would you have times by the probability uh, that that happens? So, uh, and, and I think if you're willing to be one of the minority of people who are willing to do very chancy things, to, to go out and like pioneer near new areas where you can't really quantify how much impact you're going to have, then I expect that that gives you, gives you more leverage over, over the future and, and how it goes relative to trying to kind of play it safe and do things where it's very easy to quantify. So if there's a thing that there's a 0.1% chance that it might happen, but it would be the extinction of all of humanity, then one might, through that calculus, decide that it's worth concentrating on that problem. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, exactly. So it's like problems have like diff- different different scales. And then if, if the scale of the problem or the scale of the, of the badness of it is large enough, then that might compensate for like a lower probability of fixing it. So kind of a nuclear war would be so bad that even if you had only a one in a million chance of preventing a nuclear war, that would still be really valuable. Like a lot of people would, would consider that worth doing. And that's kind of how I think about a, a lot of my work. Um, it's like the odds of having an impact are potentially quite low, but if we succeed, by golly, it will be a, a really huge impact. And so I, I regard that as valuable. Um, the mathematical term is in expectation. Is this related to the idea of, uh, I think it's called Pascal's wager, that I think it's an argument for believing in, in God, that uh, if... There is a God, and you will be punished for not believing in God. There, it would be really bad because you would go to hell, and so therefore you should believe in God. Is that related, or am I tangling things? Uh, well, 
it's slightly different from the Pascal's wager case um, because so the Pascal's wager case usually involves infinities. So it'll say there's like infinite value if you're right and infinite disvalue if you're wrong. Mm. Uh, so that is a is a reason to kind of kind of believe in God. Because I think here we're just dealing with like very like finite amounts, and they're also like it's not as if there's like a one in a billion chance of these things being true. I think like the odds of nuclear war is really in, within our lifetimes is really quite material. You know, it's maybe like one to ten percent. These aren't like these mm-hmm. aren't tiny chances, and like much crazier things happen happen all the time. Um, so it's not the same as saying, I, I believe that there's a, a 0.1% chance that the stay puff marshmallow man <laughs> is going to come and destroy the the world. And so now I'm going to dedicate my life to preventing the stay puff marshmallow man <laughs> from coming and like, destroying the world. You don't, yeah, you don't have to believe in crazy fantasies to imagine nuclear war. We've come so close to having nuclear wars, um, already in history. There's like lots of near misses. Um, you don't have to be crazy to think that there could be a war between China and the U.S. in the 21st century. Um, like if you, if you look at kind of the reference class, so like a bunch of similar cases in history uh, where you've got kind of uh, one power to some extent ceding control to a new rising power, then more than half of the time uh, they go to war. Now, it's, it's a slightly different situation here because we have nuclear weapons, which discourages them from fighting. But yeah, I think that the risk of like some serious conflict between the U.S. and China in the 21st century, uh, you'd have to be... Um, I have to, I think, be like very optimistic to say it's less than ten percent. Um, so these, these, I think, these are like real, real threats. I, um, I guess I could, you, you could, if we're being purely philosophical, yeah, you could imagine there's like something like even worse, and there's a one in a million chance, and so you should go and go and work on that. But I, I don't think that these things really bite because I think that, that the probabilities are just really material. The probabilities of a group of people who are become who are like talented and ambitious and like really want to focus on preventing this stuff, probability of them as kind of a community having an impact on these things, I think is also just really material. Um, so we're not, we're not talking about negligible. We're not talking about infinitesimals here. But in the case of say nuclear war, certainly that's something that, that people can imagine uh, happening and it would be really awful. Is that neglected? Yeah. So that's an interesting question that we had to analyze when we were thinking about um, nuclear war. I think uh, short answer is not terribly. Um, I think for most people trying to work on nuclear issues, probably isn't um, a great option. Another one is just like most people don't have very good personal fit for that because if you want to do that, then you're probably going to have to go into either the military or kind of the national security community uh, in some form. And most people just kind of cut out, aren't cut out for that. That's not, a, that's not a good fit for their personalities or what they want to do with their lives or what they've studied. And it is true that, I mean, I think this was neglected and a very promising area to work on in the 40s and 50s. Uh, there were people who foresaw what was going to happen with uh, nuclear weapons, but even even before they were invented or even before like most people believed that that they could be created. Um, and tried to like invent or like figure out like what was going to be the international scenario, like what was going to be the international relations implications of this. Um, and, and how could we design a system such that nuclear war would be extremely unlikely, even once we had nuclear weapons? Uh, and to some extent, they, they, they had a bit of success there. So if you were alive in the fifties, uh, and you were kind of someone who was very good at this kind of analysis, then it would be a great opportunity. But now, like so much work has been done and so many institutions have been set up that in 2019, it doesn't look so amazing. Unless, of course, you can find some, uh, really neglected sub area. So like possibly there's not a lot of people who do kind of public campaigning on nuclear issues. Maybe because it's just a bit hard to kind of get the public that excited about nuclear war, <laughs> like that excited about nuclear stuff in general. But if you kind of any area, even if it's like not not neglected in general, it's possible to find sometimes some sub areas like amazing opportunities that people haven't spotted yet, where uh, where that like that approach uh, is is neglected. But I think for most people, finding that with nuclear war is is, is going to be tricky. Yeah. So pandemics, we want to avoid a global pandemic. We want to avoid nuclear war. What are some of the other I mean, especially the neglected ones, the, hmm. the neglected realistic areas that a person couldn't have an impact. Yeah. So I guess another thing that could, could really shape the, the future of humanity in a, in, in a big way that was 
neglected, at least until recently, and to some extent it's still neglected, is um, kind of transformative artificial intelligence. So it does just seem like uh, artificial intelligence could end up subbing in for like most of the work that people do. Um, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not sure when, when that's going to happen or even like entirely whether it's possible. But if we do design, you know, machine learning systems that are capable of doing most of the generalized reasoning that the humans are capable of, it seems like that could really revolutionize society and would have massive implications like economically and in, in terms of international relations, in terms of everything. Um, and so making sure, firstly, that uh, those algorithms are safe to use and are not going to backfire in some way that we haven't foreseen and that they are, that we know how to program into them that they are going to like do things that we actually want rather than things that we don't intend. Um, as, as we already see with some machine learning algorithms that are deployed and then it turns out that they're doing, that they're achieving goals that are quite different than the ones that we thought that, that we were telling them to do. Um, that, that seems like a really important work. And also figuring out how, uh, like, like I was saying, uh, nuclear weapons, 40s and 50s, this is a thing that like dramatically changed the, the nature of war and international relations. It's possible that artificial intelligence uh, could have uh, similar similar impacts in, in in the longer term. Uh, there's a lot of people who are kind of concerned about this in the national security community and uh, in, in international relations. Well, how might that play out? So both the U.S. and China see artificial intelligence as um, a technology with like very important strategic implications. So I guess one way that you could imagine um, this being important is that you could use. Um, artificial intelligence to try to disable uh, other the other side's nuclear weapons. Um, seems like there's um, a risk of that. That's something that people have been analyzing and, and seems material and probably we need to need to adapt to that because then that like creates a strategic unbalance where one side could potentially uh, attack first and, and, and expect to, to benefit from that. Um, in general, well, another one is you can uh, program uh, AI into fighter jets and it seems like you can make them a lot more uh, effective such that you could like gain air superiority. Um, kind of any, any new technology that uh, creates the possibility of new weapons can, can destabilize what's kind of uh, the piece that we have now where both sides believe that like uh, attacking um, would, would, would be disastrous for them and, and for the other side so, so they don't do it. Um, it also seems potentially um, machine learning systems that can learn to hack uh, extremely effectively are probably on the way. Um, and they could be used, um, kind of for, for cyber warfare. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, it does seem like a one, yeah, one side, uh, advancing far ahead of, of the other, uh, in, in machine learning or in artificial intelligence, uh, having, um, access to like much, much greater intelligence, much greater analytical capability, uh, could, could really freak out the other side, uh, and, and yeah, de destabilize international relations in, in, in some way. So that, that at least seems to have, it's worth having some people look into that. Um, mm. I, I'm mentioning this, um, not because it's like necessarily, it's, it's like definitely going to be a problem or it's like necessarily the biggest threat that we face, but rather because it seems like it's kind of an emerging issue that's very important that until recently, uh, very few people have been investigating, but, but now there is kind of appearing this, uh, this community that looks at, in, uh, you know, artificial intelligence and thinks about the poli like the, the political implications, the policy implications, the strategic implications, figuring out how we can um, adapt to a world where artificial intelligence becomes a really big deal in a way that's kind of safe for everyone and, and leads to good outcomes. Right. So in, in addition to the way that artificial intelligence might affect global conflicts, the artificial intelligence itself may be a danger or the implementation of it in society. I mean, potentially, I guess. So for example... Uh, some people will be familiar with this issue that YouTube designed kind of algorithms that were meant to optimize for engagement and watching time, uh, which ended up kind of unintentionally in pushing people down um, spirals into like crazy conspiracy theories. Hmm. So they'd look at, you know, something that was like verging a little bit on a conspiracy theory. And then the next recommended thing would be like an even crazier conspiracy theory video. 
And this basically like caused some people to become like absolute conspiracy theorists because just all they were getting fed was this material suggesting that like the government was out to get them, like every, everybody's lying to you. And this was like, this was not in, an intended outcome of this algorithm. Uh, that is just the result that it had given kind of the instructions that we gave it, not realizing what, how it would optimize for, for, um, the, for the thing that we'd asked it to do, which was improve watching time. Um, and I think that's kind of writ small, a problem that you get. Like, if you're deploying, well, there's going to be a lot of, <laughs> as we design machine learning algorithms that can do more general reasoning and make better decisions than people can across like a wide range of domains. There's going to be a lot of competitive pressure to, to roll them out because if other businesses are using machine learning algorithms to kind of figure out how they can be, have a competitive advantage, then being the one company that doesn't do that, uh, puts you at a competitive disadvantage. And likewise with kind of countries, there's some competitive pressure there to do that. So there's going to be like some degree of kind of a, a race to, to implement these things. Uh, and we want to make sure that in, in the process of, you know, get delegating effectively a lot of decision-making power within society to machine learning processes. If indeed we kind of uh, in, in find a way to get machine learning systems that can do general reasoning. Um, in the process of doing that, uh, we don't end up like deploying them before we've actually figured out how do we get them to do what we really want, what we, what we ultimately want rather than just like optimize for some kind of superficial things that kind of initially correlated with the outcomes that we decide, but in fact, like lead them to do stuff that isn't what we want. I think the famous example is what if it decided that uh, it needed to turn the world into paper clips because <laughs> we've given it some goal that uh, then causes it to decide that it needs paper clips and therefore it turns all the matter of the earth in, into paper clips. Yeah. So this would be the most like wildly extreme kind of case of this uh, value misalignment um, where I guess hypothetically you give, yeah, some artificial intelligence system that is just unfathomably more powerful than us and more unfathomably powerful than anything else in the world, um, a, a simple instruction like make the maximum number of paperclips, then plausibly it will figure out that the way to do that is to kind of get rid of the people who might turn it off. And then and then it just has a free hand to uh, to turn the entire world and the entire universe into paperclips. I mean, I don't, it's not going to play out like that. I think that's just kind of a, a sketch of like a sense in which uh, things can go wrong. If you have a system that's just like way more powerful and like way more able to accomplish its goals than, than what you, than what you bargained for. It, 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 I mean, you see this all the time with machine learning systems now that you give them yeah, an instruction and then they find some way of doing the thing. It's like, it's like a genie. They find a way of doing something that, uh, is like very different than what you intended. So often, um, if you give a machine, if you get a machine learning system to try to play a computer game really well, it finds some kind of cheat or some kind of bug in the game that allows it to like rack up the score in a way that was not intended. There's various cases of this. And I guess you might worry that this could have like, if we're going to put, you know, artificial intelligence in charge of uh, military equipment, which is probably going to happen, um, and it's kind of already gradually happening now, we really want to make sure that we've like programmed it correctly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I guess this brings us to the idea of long-termism, is hmm. that some of the things, decisions that we might make today would have an impact on theoretical people who might exist in the future. And uh, can you explain a little bit why long-termism is... I think it's one of the driving values of 80,000 hours and the recommendations you make, correct? Yeah, it's, it's one of our key ideas. So, so let's just take a, take a step back for a second. Um, so if you're looking for problems that are, that are really neglected, then one way to do that is to kind of find beneficiaries, like yeah, groups that are suffering or groups that could be advantaged that are not as obvious to people as kind of people they might meet in their own country on, on the street or people who might appear on television. So one way you might do that is to, like, rather than focusing on helping people who are in your city or in your country, 
who like may already be getting like a bunch of support from from the government, uh, go and focus on like the world's poorest people and the world's poorest countries and the world's poorest places. Uh, people who like are so poor and like in such remote locations that it's like you're unlikely to even uh, become aware of of their circumstances in the normal course of events because they're going to be more neglected by other people and there might be higher impact opportunities to help them. And it, indeed, it does seem like there's uh, like yeah, people in Kenya whose incomes are probably a hundredth of most of, of the incomes of people listening. And so if you were to like, yeah, give money to them rather than uh, spend it on yourself, potentially they, um, it, it, as much as you think people get logarithmic returns to higher consumption, which is like a reasonable estimate, they could benefit, you know, a hundred times more uh, than, than, than you could. This is even adjusting for like different costs of living in, the, in these countries. So there's one thing, focus on people overseas, people who might get ne- neglected. Um, then you might think, well, who what other beneficiaries are there out there uh, who, who could benefit from my actions that they might be getting neglected by people because they're just not so salient or because of past moral errors that people are making. And another one that people stumbled on fairly early was like, what about the, the welfare of animals? Um, only a tiny, like only a few percent of uh, charitable donations in the United States go towards the, the environment and, and animal welfare. And most of that is spent on things that I think are not terribly effective, like kind of pet shelters and, and, and uh, yeah, welfare for, for pets and stray dogs and things like that. Well, hold on a second. Yeah. You're going to have to <laughs> expand on that at some point, yeah. <laughs> whether you do now or later is fine. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. So the reason I, I wouldn't focus on that is like one, there's a bunch of money going there. But also just like the vast majority of animals that, uh, that humans are interacting with and causing benefit and harm to are animals in the farming system. There's like billions of chickens that are slaughtered in the United States every, every year for, for human consumption. Um, hundreds of millions of pigs. And like 99% of these animals are in like factory farms where if you just go and like look at the videos, if you just like look at the equipment that's being sold to these farms, um, it's, I, I think a moral abomination, what, what we're doing probably because there's every reason to think that these animals, uh, you know, can feel pleasure and pain and they're being kept in uh, just horrible conditions for, for basically their entire lives, their, their, their brief lives. And then, then they're being killed often in quite unpleasant ways. So if you kind of just do the math on that and you're like, well, here's how many animals there are. And like here, here's how bad their lives are. Kind of like, here's maybe an estimate of like how much an animal suffers relative to a person. Um, if, unless you place like an extremely low probability on animals being conscious, which seems unreasonable or place an extremely low weight on the suffering that they endure, which also seems morally unreasonable to me, then it seems like maybe you can have a much bigger impact by kind of persuading or like doing things like, um, uh, corporate welfare campaigns, which have been amazingly successful in the United States at getting companies to improve the conditions of farm animals, you know, especially, especially caged chickens that, you know, don't even have enough space in the cages to turn around. So you're saying relative to the stray dog that's on the street that using a, a certain a unit of resource would be better allocated toward uh, helping the factory farmed animals that are suffering than say the, the dog that's a stray animal. Yeah. So if you just kind of do a ratio of like the number of animals and the amount that they're suffering as against how much uh, attention are they getting or how many resources are going to towards helping them, the ratio is like just totally way off uh, such that like it seems that you can get, get a lot more bang for buck by, by focusing on farm animals because there's so many more of them and they're so much more neglected. And the reason is obvious that people's heartstrings are, are tugged by kind of yeah, stray dogs that they see or kind of pets that they know are suffering. It's easier to raise money if, money for that than it is to raise money for um, factory farmed animals, which are very deliberately kept out of people's sight so that they can stomach the idea of eating meat in these countries. Um, so yeah, there's kind of an, another class of beings that, that you might be able to uh, have, have a larger impact by focusing on them because other people are failing to do so and, and we're treating them very, very badly. Mm-hmm. All right, then... What else, what else, what other groups could we find that uh, might be neglected by society as, as it currently stands? Um, groups that we could benefit a lot or who we're currently doing bad things to in a sense. Um, but because they're just not top of the mind for us. And I think the, the, the other big group is kind of future generations. 
So, so most people don't just care about themselves or, or even just the, their children. They also care about like whether they're going to leave a good world for the, for the grandchildren and, and, and the grandchildren's children. And if you just think about like how long humanity could continue to, to exist on earth, um, just using even current technology that we have or, you know, technology that we're going to invent soon, um, we could have another million generations before the earth becomes uninhabitable. Um, but at the very least, we might hope to live for, you know, another million years, uh, which would involve, you know, another 10,000 generations because, you know, humanity, roughly, roughly our species has been around for a million years so far. In which case, it just seems like there's going to be far more people in the future than are alive today, far more beings that we could help who yeah, ex- exist at this other time than, exist, than happen to exist at the present moment that, that we're in. Um, so if you place some more weight on the, the, impl- the, the effects of our actions on future generations, which I absolutely think that we should, rather than just privileging the time that we happen to be alive, then here's this enormous potential group that, that we could have large effects on, maybe. So then what things could we do today that might benefit this group? Um, people have been trying to analyze this. You know, there's like researchers who think uh, about this topic. It's kind of their, their profession is trying to think, what things could we do that would make the future better for future generations? Uh, and one of them we've been talking about a bunch, which is like worrying about catastrophic threats to civilization, to, to the world, uh, from which we might never recover. Such that, you know, if we have a nuclear war today, if there's a war between the US and China, this could just like destabilize uh, civilization, take it off track such that um, it leaves a worse world for people not only, you know, in a decade's time or in a hundred years time, but in a thousand years time. And it, it could even get to the point where we, we cause ourselves to go extinct. Such, uh, and that would be bad, not only because kind of we and everyone we love would die, which would be terrible. And I think there's a real risk of that happening. Um, but because we would snuff out the possibility of all of these future generations, uh, you know, all of the future people whose we could have built a wonderful world for and who could have had great lives, uh, they'll, ne- they'll never get to exist. Um, so that's, that's some, that's, 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 that's an extra reason, uh, that, that I'm focused on kind of threat reduction and global risk management is that, um, not, not only can, do I think that there's a large impact by reducing, uh, threats that could damage the world now for, for people who are alive now, but it also has this bonus that you could potentially make the world better for the thousands of future generations uh, who, who, might, who might be to come. Hmm. What sort of uh, objections do you get most often to the idea of long-termism, of, of hmm. doing things to benefit people who don't exist? Hmm. I think there's probably two broad classes. Uh, one is people who... Um, think that we should place less moral weight on the welfare of future generations uh, than the present generation. Uh, I guess some people will go as far as to say we pl- should place no weight <laughs> on the welfare of future generations, which seems seems far too extreme to me. We could kind of explore the, 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 the philosophy there a little bit. Maybe the other one is just skepticism that we can have effects that will be very long-lasting, or at least that we can predict um, whether those effects will be good or bad. Uh, so I was doing another interview uh, a few weeks ago where I said, oh, it'd be good for the future if we avoided a nuclear war today. And they were like, no, really? <laughs> uh, uh, how, you know, who can say there's, there's this uh, issue in philosophy, which actually a lot of people involved in the effective action community are kind of on, on, on the bleeding out of re- research into, uh, which is moral cluelessness. So if you think that the majority of beings who we affect uh, or who like suffer the consequences of our actions are beings that will be alive in the future, people who will be alive in the future, then... Because it's so hard to foresee what effect you know, each of the things that I do might have on those people, um, and that stuff is really important. Uh, but it also seems like uh, you know, if I could figure out, and maybe I could figure out what it, what effects it would have, that would be really important. I'm to, a, to some extent kind of clueless in my day to day life about the moral, uh, like the morality of my actions. 
And so I think that is a difficult challenge, though, although uh, one that can be to a significant extent answered by just, just pragmatism and trying to do, do our best to understand um, what effects our actions will have and trying to find guideposts or like th- things that we can change about the present that seem on balance uh, fairly likely to lead, like more likely to lead to a better future than, than, a, than a worse one. So wait, the idea of moral cluelessness isn't so much that it's not some sort of argument against long-termism. It's just an observation that we tend to be morally clueless about the way this, that our current actions affect future generations. Yeah, I guess it's like a slight paradox. So like, I, I think in as much as you just do think that future generations matter to some extent, there could be like vastly more people in the future than, than are alive today and that our actions have big impacts on them, then even if you think it's like very hard to predict what those actions are, then nonetheless, that would be like among the most important things you could do. The fact that it's hard to do doesn't really change that that would be like a very important thing to look into. You can't kind of escape that because any, because anything else that you try to do to improve the world, um, today, anything that you try to do that's safer just pushes the question forward to like, well, what impact did that have on future generations? Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's not so much a rebuttal as like a difficult, um, pr- practical question of like, how do we, how do we, avoid being completely clueless about the effects on our actions on the long term. Well, can we dissect a little bit of some of the philosophy around it? I, I could say, for example, everybody is destroyed, everybody dies, which would be a really terrible day. But then these people who, these future generations that didn't end up existing because of it, well, they never existed to suffer the consequences of their not existing. Is it just that they're, they're, they're not existing is the consequence? Uh, well, let, let me blow your mind for a second. Um, it seems like, okay. uh, almost like most of the actions that we take or many trivial actions that we take basically change the identities of like everyone who will exist in the future. So in a sense, they're like swapping out all of the people who would have existed, uh, like swapping in a different bunch of people. And I'll explain how that is. So let's say that you like stop in traffic, uh, for a bit in, in, in a big city, kind of hold up traffic for, uh, 10 seconds, or even just like throw a ball onto the street such that like cars are moving around at, at, at different times. Then gradually this, this kind of ripples out, uh, to like the whole city and eventually the whole world in terms of, uh, like everyone's going about their day, like a few seconds, like sooner or later. And then, uh, whenever basically who is produced, uh, at the point of conception or who is produced when uh, two people like <laughs> yeah, create a child is entirely is dependent on what sperm, uh, happens to uh, conceive, conceive that egg. And if it happens a second later or a second, uh, after, it basically, the, the probability is that it's going to be a different sperm. Uh, and so you'll create a different child because, you know, half of the genes are going to be, going to be completely different. And so it, like, any action that you take that like gradually changes people's like timing or like even just the movements of their bodies by like tiny amounts over the course of like one or two generations results in like a totally different mix of people existing on the planet. And we're all doing this all the time. Um, this is a, an, an issue in population. I think it's called kind of, or like it leads to the non-identity problem. Well, couldn't you then, sorry to interrupt that, but, but couldn't you then, uh, I mean, it seems like every single action you took all day long would then be causing people to not exist. Yeah. I mean, so my view is that what we want to do is, uh, well, like my ideal would be to have a world that has a lot of people in the future living wonderful lives, like flourishing lives where, where they're really happy. And having a world where there's like people having great lives is better than a world that's barren and empty uh, and, and has nothing in it. But isn't that, isn't that a human bias? Uh, in what way? I mean, yeah, we think that because we're humans and we like being alive. I mean, we like being alive enough to to not to make ourselves not alive. So, wouldn't we naturally be biased in that view that 
a world with people living and in, enjoying life uh, is better than a world uh, where some thing that we tried to prevent, but that we were unable to prevent, yeah. you know, caused everybody to be wiped out. I mean, I, I also apply this to kind of animals and uh, like, you know, descendants of humans that might appear. So it's more, I think about like positive states of consciousness uh, are, are a good thing to have. Now I should say, uh, to be clear, like uh, most of the things that I do don't really rest on this, on this premise, because I think the risk of extinction and catastrophe within the current generation for people who are alive now is sufficiently high that you get a really big bang for buck just trying to prevent these things, even if you don't care about future generations whatsoever. But I think if, if you're, if you like me think that it's bad to like do things that will cause the next generation to have, have bad lives or to simply not exist, uh, which I think is actually like very intuitive. If some, if like a politician was running for office and they're like, yeah, sure. The decisions I make will like ensure that there are no future generations that humanity ends right now. Uh, but, but who cares? They won't be there or they'll, they'll never exist. So like vote one for me, like pro extinction candidate. I think that most people would not be like, yeah, that sounds fine. Like to begin with, like we get a lot of meaning in our lives from the fact that we know that, that, that our children are going to like benefit from the things that we're doing from like what we're building up from the research that we do from, from our creative works. Uh, we want to be part of a broader story of like civilization and humanity making the world good and accomplishing great things. Uh, there's this, there's this thought experiment where you imagine, uh, what if you knew that like a day after your own death, the world would simply cease to exist? That would be like uh, the end of it. And like no one else would, would, would be around anymore. And I think most people, they're not like, well, I wasn't there, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and it's not even that it's like, it's bad for the other people. It's that it like, strips the meaning away from your own life because everything that you're doing, like having children, like trying to make a better world, trying to contribute to like the human story is like stripped away because as soon as you, uh, you go, then all of that disappears as well. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm slightly avoiding like the more technical philosophical issues here within population ethics because they're a little bit hard to like go through uh, on, yeah. on, on a podcast. If, you, if you're interested in this, um, we can put up a link to kind of a great summary paper of this issue in ethics, which is called population ethics. And we also have a great podcast with the philosopher at Oxford, um, Hilary Graves, where we discuss, yeah, what views are plausible on this question of like, do, yeah, do future generations uh, matter or not? Yeah. And I, I agree there's a certain kind of intuitiveness to the idea that like future generations are kind of of overwhelming importance. And maybe you want to think, oh, I know what, I, what matters is just like people alive today, like specific people who we can identify. Um, but. If, if you try to like specify that view clearly, you find that it has like absolutely wacky uh, implications, uh, like implications that are even bizarre than the idea that, that future generations matter a great deal. Uh, so, so for example, um, uh, if you think that what really matters is like only specific identifiable people who are like the same and comparable in like two different scenarios, then this problem that like every action that you take uh, changes the identities of future generations means it's this is called the non-identity problem. Um, it, it means that basically you don't care even if you like, if you take some action that like will make the future world like a terrible dystopian hell, <laughs> then you won't even care because in the process you would have like changed exactly who's conceived. And so there'll be a different bunch of people who are living terrible lives rather than, rather than good lives. Um, but, but you will have done nothing wrong because there'll be like no specific people who you can compare between the good world and the bad world. Mm. Um, which, which I think is even more, uh, even more odd conclusion <laughs> than the one where you just say, well, it's good to have people and animals living good lives, uh, and like bad to have them living bad lives. And it's like, I guess somewhere in between that to have there be nothing at all. Okay. Some people might have heard of Derek Parfit and his book Reasons and Persons, which like goes into this in great methodical detail. Yeah. I've been, I've been uh, thinking about this long termism as I've prepared for our interview. I'm certainly not yet on, on board with it. 
I don't know whether it's just because it's just w- one more extremely difficult thing to think about. But uh, it did make me wonder, though, and I wonder if you've thought about this, uh, how the effect of the incredible amounts of very rich video and audio media and of high quality, high fidelity video and audio media that we are accruing. Mm. Whereas it's, it's like, you know, when I was 11 in 1990, and I was watching something that was 50 years old. Well, it was from 1940s. And the quality of the audio was, is terrible. The quality of the video is terrible. I, don't, I feel very separate from those people. But if I'm watching something now and it's 50 years old, it's from like 1970. Mm. And if I've got a good reproduction, like you can listen to, I don't even know if Jimi Hendrix was still alive in 1970. I don't think he, I'm not <laughs> sure. But but you know you can listen to somebody who's been dead for a very long time hmm. or see them in a movie and it is like they are right there singing to you or you are seeing their face up close and you feel this this connection with this person who's been gone for so long hmm. and it seems like the more crisp that fidelity is like if i listen to an old delta blues artist uh from the 30s or listen to charlie patton or robert johnson or something and it sounds all scratchy it sort of has this distance to it where it's you don't feel as connected it's more of an escape in that way yeah. or if you but if you watch like a remember watching the um Ken Burns documentary of World War II. And mm. there's some very high quality video in there of these young men who are going to war. Mm. And you look at them and their faces are like, that could be your friends that you just hung out with last night. It's so crisp. And it really brings an immediacy and impact uh, to this this event that, that occurred in the world that uh, I think makes you think about it in a, in a more, in a deeper way uh, than if you didn't have that level of fidelity. And so I wonder how that would affect the way that we think about the long term. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, the effect of colorizing old photos in terms of making it feel real uh, is, is, is really quite remarkable. I, I've, I've noticed exa- exactly the same thing. And there is, I guess, it, maybe it's one reason why I think people don't, like we're not allocating, you know, <laughs> 10% of GDP to trying to make the, the long-term future or like to benefit future generations. It's a little bit harder to get excited about them because they don't exist yet because they're not tangible. We don't like, we don't know what specific people are going to benefit and exactly what impact all of this is, is, is going to have. Um, so people have tried to, tried to get around this. So, uh, the philosopher Nick, Nick Bostrom wrote this, uh, brief, uh, letter from Utopia where he, uh, had, had someone basically like writing from the future saying like, we managed to like stay on the stay on the right path and build a world that was that was peaceful and we like invented all these amazing new technologies that that make life wonderful and 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 here's what's going on in the future like please don't like please don't mess it up like please make sure that that in fact we do exist and, and this happens to try to make it more tangible like just how 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 good we could make the world uh, if if we keep inventing science and technology if we keep advancing in in, in our moral values and just keep incrementally every generation making the world a better place um yeah, we, we could make, we could make the world fantastic. And I think that's a vision that, that, that people should maybe, maybe be a little bit more excited by and, uh, trying to, trying to paint that story rather than just having horrible, uh, dystopian science fiction, uh, might help to get people, people more, more, more motivated to do things today that would, that would make that happen. Uh, that makes me think of a, another thing, which I don't know how, how on topic it is, but it's, it's fun to talk about these theoretical things with you because you're somebody who thinks about this, uh, more than most people that I, <laughs> that I talk to. Do you think there should be a sports league in which all drugs and all um, any bionic modifications 
go. Like you can do anything you want. You can take any drugs you want to play this sport. Yeah. I, I have my thoughts about okay, it, but sure. I, I wonder how, how that hits you. <laughs> um, I have thought a little bit about, about the philosophy of this. I mean, yeah, let's, let's take a step back. I, I think there is definitely something that's weird about how you can engage in like insane amounts of very expensive training, uh, like, and have amazing equipment to, to play the sport and like take time off from your job to just like do this all the time. And also, of course, some people are like born with much better phys- physical capabilities to do you know, something like swimming than, than some other people. And yet we draw the line at kind of taking drugs or like doing, doing human augmentation. It seems kind of arbitrary. And I guess people say, well, the, the reason is that these, that, that doping or yeah, using, uh, in, was it like sports enhancing drugs, um, that they're like bad for your health. But it's not obvious to me that they're like, especially like worse for your like life <laughs> or like all your health and like many other things that kind of sports people do, especially like just spending their entire lives doing this thing, <laughs> like getting up at 6 a.m. every morning. That's a, it actually sounds worse than just taking steroids, right? <laughs> so uh, I think philosophically, it's like a little bit harder to draw a distinction between like sports equipment and training and, uh, and, and doping. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe it would be very interesting to watch a league where there would just be no rules about what, what drugs you could take. And that would stimulate, you know, a renaissance in, in research into, uh, into power or like phys- physiologically enhancing drugs. But I also worry that would look awful <laughs> that, that we would, uh, you know, I would suggest this and be excited about this. And then it would create some kind of like hellish uh, vision of the future. Well, I just thought about it because you were talking about this vision of the future, how if we made all these scientific advancements, things could be so much better. Well, if we had a sports league where any uh, bionic modification was uh, allowed, where any drug was allowed, uh, yeah, I suppose a lot of people would think that it would set a bad example or something. It would certainly end a lot of certain debates about, uh, oh, can we have transgender athletes, etc. And uh, it would just be anything goes. But one of the interesting side benefits would probably be we know how big of a business sports is and how much money goes into sports medicine and and performing better at sports. Well, wouldn't that just cause us to have all these wonderful technologies that would be especially useful for people who need them, uh, people who need prosthetics or who need drugs to help with preventing muscle loss or uh, in, in improving cognitive performance if they have some sort of brain damage, etc. I mean, wouldn't it create actually a greater good for humanity if that happened? And yeah. is it an arms race? Is it an eventuality? Because aren't there some countries where, yes, in the United States, we might find it uh, repugnant, but aren't there some countries where they're not going to feel that way about it and uh, it's an in- inevitability? Like, wouldn't this be a Maybe I'm ignorant about China, but wouldn't this be like a something China would be into? And oh yeah, interesting. I mean, I think people have a lot of intuitions about kind of what's natural and what's not natural, and I think there's this instinctive thing to think that something is not natural and so it's bad. Um, and like th- this is kind of one of the examples of that where I think people have this intuition against doping, like it's unfair, but it's like it's kind of only really unfair because it's against the rules. There's no like really principled reason. And kind of, and it, yeah, changing your body, like having uh, cosmetic surgery, do, doing doing lots of other things. People don't like it because it feels um, in some gut reaction uh, as, as like being unnatural. But I think people should really question that because almost everything that we do today was unnatural at some po- point in the past. And some people complained about it and said, no, this isn't a natural way for people to be. Uh, but then in the long term, we kind of benefit, benefit a lot from it. Um, and it's true that like lots of, 
we might invent lots of technologies that happen to be unnatural and will lead to bad consequences. Uh, but I think we could invent lots of uh, technologies that are unnatural that would have good consequences too. So for example, yeah, um, in some universities, it's a uh, ban to use was it cognitively in, in, in enhancing drugs. So it, some people use things like, um, Wait, as, a, as a student, as a student. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think, so, how do you enforce that? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not, it's not in reality because we use them all the time. Um, but it's like, it's just not clear what the principled reason for this is. Like if we can come up with chemicals that make us more intelligent, that make us able to like learn more, do, do like do a better, do better, do a better job. Then uh, why, why is that bad? Uh, people, people say it's, it's unfair, but like, why is it any more unfair than, than studying more or like taking care of your health? And so you're like smarter because you, you know, uh, went to the gym. I, um, I, I would love to see more research into, um, ways that we could make people have better judgment or, or be, 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 be smarter that, that involves biology. Um, but there's, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for that. And there's this very odd thing that at least in the West, uh, as you're saying, we're extremely focused on invent like, technologies that can solve problems, but or like, so if we can classify it as a disease, then it's acceptable to like take a drug to, to fix that. But if you're already quite healthy, however we define that, then like using any extra technology or any extra drug, or, you know, having surgery to try to make yourself better. That's, that's not permissible. Uh, that's, that, that's like viewed with as like somewhat disgusting, uh, and unacceptable. And I just think that's like a lot more harder to justify on reflection than maybe, maybe what, 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 what most people think. Huh. Yeah. You have to, you have to earn it. I guess it's like a, a Puritan value, perhaps. I don't know. I guess the reason that I don't take, you know, Adderall all day, every day or something would just be because I would imagine that it would, cause an imbalance that would ultimately not get me where I actually wanted to go. I mean, it's sort of like the, the idea of, uh, you, you mentioned sports, um, just the, the possible negative implications of doing this thing your entire life. And this is one of these things that, uh, I guess it's a prejudice I have against, uh, the Olympics and that I haven't frankly followed up on a lot, but just this idea of, okay, this, this little girl, when she was four years old, left her house and, and, traveled across the country to then go do gymnastics for every day of her entire life. And now this one moment where she might be sick or might break her ankle, et cetera, like everything that she's done in her entire life Mm. uh, depends upon whether she can perform in this moment now (laughs) or not. And if she does poorly, it's going to be terrible. Like that just seems like a a recipe for disaster. So you you said earlier that, um, Athletes that doped, uh, yeah, took performance enhancing drugs might set a bad example for other people. But I think that like <laughs> people who spend their entire life just trying to swim like one second faster than someone else and like doing nothing more valuable for society than that, maybe they're setting a bad example just to say something, something controversial. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, well, it depends upon, yeah, what, what, what are our, our values? Um, what is, what does it mean to be an effective person? Yeah. And maybe we're wrong. Like maybe you can do that and actually be like a, uh, a wonderful contributing member of society in, in some ways. Um, who, yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, it's interesting to try to classify. Yeah. What are the, what are the, what are the benefits of having people be better at sport? So to some extent, maybe it becomes more enjoyable to watch as people like approach like very high levels of performance. But one has to wonder, like, do you ever like hit declining returns that like having people spend like even more effort trying to go like even a little bit faster at swimming or running? Like, uh, is the audience enjoying it that much more than if they were all just like 0.1 of a second slower? <laughs> and is it good for people to enjoy watching sports? Uh, it, it's sort of like uh, if we, the more that we get people to enjoy uh, scan, uh, scrolling through Facebook, hmm. um, as we've seen, I would posit that there 
we we reached a, a point of diminishing <laughs> returns on our enjoyment of things. So like just because people enjoy it doesn't mean that it's yeah. does that make it good. And I've thought about that with um the idea of storytelling. I, I'm somebody who studies storytelling, and I I think that uh, being able to tell stories is is a good way of of uh, influencing people and and impacting them. But you look at something like Netflix, where there's just an endless supply of wonderful stories that you could sit and watch all day long. Yeah. It makes you wonder, is it a good thing? I, I wish that that was the case. To be honest, I find it quite hard to find anything I want to watch on Netflix. I'm usually like out of programs that I want to see, but, oh, but, maybe, okay. but maybe I'm very demanding. The, um, I, I think that's right. We, we live at a time when you can like access all of the output of human, or like most of the output of human creativity uh, at any point in time, like very easily uh, and very cheaply, uh, which means it's like, if you're someone who's easily distracted, it's a difficult time to, to really focus on getting things done and, and accomplishing your higher goals. Uh, but at the same time, uh, like people have access to conversation, like, yeah, po- like long form podcasts, like, to like incredibly detailed, inf- like to all of the papers they want to read, like incredibly long essays, um, to, to, to any book they want to get. Um, they have access to like incredible wealth of knowledge and, and like really in depth, uh, like things that can give them really in depth understanding of the world that previously people didn't have access to. So if you're someone who can really take advantage uh, of that, if you're an infovore who is able to focus on what really matters, then it's, it's never been a better time to be alive. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is, I think all of us like feel the conflict inside ourselves between like scrolling on our Twitter feeds and getting distracted and like reading something that's truly valuable. It's not, it's not, not straightforward to stay focused. Mm-hmm. Now that we've gone on, uh, on that long diversion, thank you for humoring me. <laughs> um, and actually, was there a thread that we left open Ooh. there at all? That, <laughs> well, that I guess we wanted to, uh, a loop we wanted to close. We were talking about long-termism and the objections to it. Um, mm. I suppose oh, you, you were saying uh, like uh, the stories that we tell now um, might last into the future. So we can imagine someone in 500 years or a thousand years, like listening to this conversation and thinking like, yeah, they're talking about me. <laughs> they're talking about us, future generations and how they had to make sure that we st- stayed on track and made the world a better place so that I could exist and have a good life. Right. And um, I think, yeah, I guess it's an exciting prospect that people in, people in the long term might look back on people who tried to make their lives better and uh, be kind of uh, excited by that. It's an interest. It makes me wonder whether audio will still be a useful, mm. considered a useful piece of medium. Is there instead something that interacts directly with your brainwaves and causes you to have an, this is a virtual reality experience. Like everybody's just in virtual reality all the time. Or, or is it pretty much kind of like things are now where, where we're just, uh, still walking around with headphones in and listening to other people talk. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. If you think of the way Nassim Taleb talks about technology, doesn't he kind of say, like, the longer something's been around, the longer it will be around? Yes, I think that's called um, Laplace's principle, that you're uh, um, likely to encounter something halfway through its existence. So, like, your best guess at how long something will continue to exist is uh, equal to how long it's already been around. Um, oh, actually, no, the Copernican principle, I think, and Laplace's law of succession. Um, huh. y- yeah. So I got, I, got, I got a couple of thoughts on this. I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit random. So if it is the case that human civilization continues to exist for thousands of millions of years, I think there's a good chance that like the beings that are alive in, at, at those times will be different than humans. They'll be like evolutionary successes, or possibly you could imagine they'll be running on computers in, in, in some form. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case that, like, for all time, we're going to have kind of the flesh and blood humans that that, that are around today. That that's going to be the kind of consciousness that exists. They'll all be uh, bionic, uh, bionic athletes. <laughs> yeah, something in that direction. I think. I think that's a that's a possibility. Or I guess you could have 
the machine learning systems that end up becoming conscious and to some extent supplanting humans. Like uh, the future could go in, in many different directions and it's ex- ex- extremely hard to, for, to foresee. Um, but I think for, for humans as we are, it's going to be hard to kind of tinker with our brains. Like the brain is a very complicated thing. It's like uh, all, all interconnected. And then trying to tinker with it so that we can absorb information better than like seeing and hearing, I, I think might, might be quite challenging because like listening to audio like this, it's replicating the internal voice that you have in your head where you talk to yourself and it's replicating the conversations that we have with other people, which is like things that we've very deeply, I think, evolved to have. And so, yeah, just, just finding a different mechanism for, um, communicating with people into the brain. I'm maybe a little bit skeptical of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so then maybe people will be listening to it just on on uh, Apple Podcasts, and, uh, <laughs> Apple Podcasts two thousand five hundred, <laughs> and somehow my Libsyn account has uh, has lived on this long. So, hello, people in the year three thousand. <laughs> it's a glorious vision of the future. So, what are some careers that people normally think of as impactful? As we get close to wrapping up here, yeah. uh, that might not be as impactful as as they assume. Yeah, let's let's move away from the crazy stuff back to the back to the common sense and, 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 and slightly more practical. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I guess I guess if you think about it, yeah, trying to have a big social impact, I guess people are very focused on working in nonprofits. Perhaps that's something that re- that really jumps to people's minds, or perhaps working in like corporate social responsibility roles or something like that. Um, I think there are some very high impact nonprofits, but nonprofits also have some has some downsides. And as we were discussing earlier, I think very often they're kind of delivering services that that, that aren't super useful or kind of working on on the wrong problems. And for kind of, for our like key target audience of like very talented people who are like 25 to, to, to 40 and very ambitious and really want to focus their whole careers on doing good. Um, we tend to focus on things like, you know, becoming an academic or becoming kind of a senior public servant, going, going into civil service, trying to uh, have, have influence over, over government, becoming like science and technology researchers, um, going, going into think tanks, uh, maybe becoming a, a congressional staffer, uh, becoming a public intellectual, running a podcast perhaps. Uh, trying to trying to improve society by by, by spreading good ideas and and and, and good judgment, um, and all of these uh, I guess are just rattling off um, options. But maybe to give that to give that a bit of structure, um, I guess we we think you can to some extent break up careers that have a big impact into into four different classes. One of them is earning to give, so trying to make a lot of money and then uh, giving that money to people or organizations that can make really good use of it to, to make the world a better place. So for that, you'd want to go into careers that that pay really well, obviously. And sometimes we, we meet people who have like very good opportunities to make large amounts of money, but like not so many other good ways to make a difference. So, so that's, that's a good option for them. Then if you want to, um, get a lot of leverage over the world, then science and technology seems like producing ideas that then spread, uh, that, that other people can copy and that can be used by millions or billions of people is a way to get a huge amount of leverage and contributing to kind of knowledge that will stick around for a very long time and just like build on what humanity knows and is capable of doing. So that's kind of, yeah, science and tech and potentially become, becoming an academic, becoming a philosopher, that kind of thing. Uh, then you've got like, uh, leverage over kind of resources in society, which you can potentially get by going into policy or politics. So, uh, if you just like look at the regulatory power of government or like the power to do violence the government has or the amount of money that it spends, um, per like decision maker within government, um, it looks like each person on average, though it's very unpredictable exactly like who's going to have uh, an effect on a particular outcome. Um, each person is, seems like they, they're getting a lot of leverage over like millions of dollars, potentially tens of millions of, of dollars that are, that are getting allocated uh, by the government and like potentially you know, much more in terms of like regulations that the government passes that have an effect on society. So that kind of offers a, 
Prima Facie a case for potentially uh, thinking that going into government and trying to make it um, do more good with the resources that it has and avoid doing harmful things uh, could could be really valuable. Although uh, uh, people could probably think of some objections uh, to that, which which we could potentially discuss. And then uh, another one is kind of uh, general advocacy. So the kind of thing that I guess we hope to do through 80,000 Hours is just spreading important ideas uh, and knowledge to other people so that they can have kind of a, a, a larger impact. Um, or tr- yeah, trying to like change people's moral values in a, in a positive direction. And there you can imagine like the reasoning to some extent behind 80,000 hours is that if I, through my work, can persuade just one other person to kind of make the career change that I otherwise would have made and to go and do like something as valuable as like what I would do if I weren't working at 80,000 hours, then that's as valuable as doing it myself. Um, and so it seems like in as much as you have some really valuable knowledge that isn't widely known, uh, which kind of we hope at 80,000 hours that we do, though I guess that's, that's for people to judge. Uh, then, then sharing that knowledge and enabling other people to, to have more impact uh, by like persuading slash, slash informing them uh, could potentially give you a lot of leverage over, over other resources. And we, we think that we've changed um, you know, over a thousand people's careers. Um, uh, like we, 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 we've changed their path to some extent. Uh, and that's with like much less than, than a thousand uh, careers worth of input. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the, the, the other category is just direct work. So finding something, a project that you can do a really good job of that's working on a key bottleneck on a really pressing global problem, uh, and then just and they're just killing it, <laughs> uh, building up an organization or like yeah doing the operations, running events, delivering a service. Um, it's, it's kind of kind of everything else, but but finding uh, a really uh, high impact thing to, to do at the uh, at, a, at a more proximate level of, of impact. Yeah, th- there's some counterintuitive things in there, and I remember reading uh, "Doing Good Better," which was uh, written by William McCaskill, who was he a co-founder of Eighty Thousand Hours? Yeah, yeah, he was. He's a trustee now. That book really uh, influenced me a lot as I was rediverting my career a few years ago. And uh, there were some surprising things in there, such as choosing to be a doctor doesn't necessarily save as many lives as, as one might think. Yeah. So this is, uh, it's been, been a little while since I've read this research, uh, but this is one of the ones where we were able to get a, a slightly, like a, a better estimate of the impact than, than, than we're usually able to do. Um, so one thing is you can look at... Uh, we kind of mapped out uh, countries by um, how good the health is, like how good the healthy life expectancy is, um, and looked at how many doctors they have per person in, in, in those countries. And kind of, there's a lot, as countries get richer, they tend to have more doctors, and they also tend to have better sanitation and like other things that, that, that improve people's health. But let's just say that uh, the correlation between, the, all of the correlation between the number of doctors that live in a country and the amount of health in that country uh, was completely down to medicine. Uh, which is absolutely not the case. It's like a much smaller fraction. But I said the doctors were causing all of that effect. Then you can see just very clearly that in some countries where there's very few doctors, where, where people are very poor, uh, the impact of having an additional doctor is, is, is really very large. But once you're at the level of kind of medicine that the United States has, um, I think it has, uh, oh God, from memories, <laughs> I'm going to get this wrong probably, but it was something like five doctors per thousand people or five, oh God, no, maybe I'm getting that wrong. But actually, there's a lot of doctors. There's a lot of doctors in the US, so like a lot of physicians in general. It seems like on the margin, each extra doctor is having only a very small effect on, on people's health. Um, basically, this is just an example of kind of the declining marginal returns that I was, that I was talking about um, earlier, where it's like, if you only have a few doctors, then what? Then they're like giving out vaccinations, giving out um, antibiotics that treat diseases that are definitely cured by antibiotics. They're doing like this really ba- important fundamental stuff uh, that, that that greatly improves health and that we have good reason to think works. Once you're like adding, you know, the 10 millionth doctor in the United States, you don't actually have that many, but like something like that, 
it's like, what do you, what do you then do with that incremental person? And it's kind of delivering the services that you otherwise couldn't deliver, which is the stuff that's like expensive, um, less likely to work. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe you're even like over treating people. Hmm. Uh, maybe you're like delivering too much medicine. And just in general, I think, uh, people are, uh, I mean, even doc, like doctors, everyone in health economics, everyone in medicine who like studies this thinks that people tend to overestimate the importance of medicine, uh, for people's health. What really matters is like, are you eating? Are you exercising? Do you smoke? Are you an alcoholic? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, once, uh, like advanced medicine, it seems is like only making a relatively limited contribution to, to people's health. Um, oh, I guess like standard sanitation is really important as well. Wow. Anyway, so from, from memory, I think a doctor over the course of their career, uh, would save, um, a couple of lives equivalent, which is like great. It's like a lot more than, than some other people are doing if, if, if they're not doctors. But it also seems like if, if you're focused on saving lives, um, like the researchers that give well, who focus on kind of global health charities have found that they think you can save a child's life from malaria for a couple of thousand dollars. I think it's about $3,500 for, uh, against malaria foundation, right? Uh, one, yeah. one life around $3,500. Yeah. So, so, I mean, these are estimates. It's like, it could be like, it could be higher, but it could be lower. Um, and so if you think about it in terms of, well, if you donated $10,000 to the most effective charities, that might have a similar impact to like uh, a doctor in a really rich country over the course of their career. It's like, you, you can see that there's like, once you start analyzing things, the numbers can just seem really whack here. It's like, how can that possibly be the case? Um, right. And of course, so it, it this also suggests that if you are trained as a, as a doctor, as a physician, then, and you want to have a larger social impact, then, well, I mean, obviously you could earn to give. So you could like take some of your, take some of your earnings and like give it to really high impact uh, work. Um, but you could also potentially go to a country that has far fewer physicians where each incremental doctor is able to deliver really valuable services that improve people's health in a big way. Right. Um, so, so we, 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 we can stick up a link to this series of blog posts. It's like, maybe we don't have time to get into like all of the like weaknesses of the analysis and like objections that one might make. But I think, but I think the broad story that probably, um, a doctor has less impact on people's, uh, welfare and their health, at least in rich countries than people think is probably still right. Right. I remember from the book, it, it was talking about somebody making a decision about what to do. And they were deciding, well, maybe I can go to a poor country and be a doctor there, but then my earnings are lower there. Yeah. And it became, the, the decision became, well, I'll be a doctor in the UK. I'll make all this money and I'll just give away uh, anything above this amount. And that will save this many lives per year by donating to the, against the Malaria Foundation. And I believe, I think it was, it wasn't like the, um, isn't the, the U.S. government, they usually, I heard this somewhere that they, they consider a plan to be or a program to be effective if it saves a life for like, was it $7 yeah. million or something? Depends on the agency, but I think it's between like 3 and $10 million. So $3,500 is very cheap to, oh, yeah. to save a life. <laughs> I mean, it's insanely cheap. I mean, so this is like one of the just most amazing facts about the world. It's for most of human history, as listeners may know, it's like everyone was poor. 99% of people were like subsistence farmers. They were like living pretty close, like they were extremely poor by, by our modern standards. There was like 1% of people who had like slightly tolerable lives because they mooched off of the other 99% and like took a bunch of their money as like tax or whatever uh, to live like sometimes lives of luxury. Basically, everyone around the world had pretty much the same income, which was like the amount of income that you need to survive to like not die. <laughs> um, and, and a little bit more than that. Uh, but in the modern world, basically, some countries have used the industrial revolution and science and technology to just become insanely rich by the standards of history. It's like in the United States, people's incomes are like a hundred times what they were in 1700. At least in terms of like material living standard. Obviously, like people's have welfare hasn't improved that quite that much because I, I don't, after a while, you hear kind of declining returns from having a higher income. Um, but yeah, uh, 
there's, there's some parts of the world that have gone through this industrialization process, become like incredibly wealthy on average, or at least some people are incredibly wealthy. And there's other parts that are basically no richer than we were in 1700 because for whatever reason, they kind of just got, they've gotten stuck for probably you know, political reasons, uh, war, uh, like lack of a lack of good legal infrastructure, um, colonialism, that kind of thing. Uh, which means that just, just from like doing fairly straightforward things, like taking money, from someone who's like really rich in the rich world and giving it to someone who's really poor in the poor world, you can get like a hundred fold increase in like the amount of welfare that's being generated by, by that income. Um, I think that's just an amazing, an amazing fact about the world. Uh, mm. and it's like maybe, maybe not, not so obvious until you actually like sit down and look at the numbers and, and, and think about it. And yes, this is adjusted for like purchasing power in the different countries. Yes. Poor countries are a lot, <laughs> a lot cheaper, but this is even taking account of the, of, of that fact. Wow. And. You know, when I got done reading that book, that was when I made, which is probably not very obvious to people that, uh, that I made any sort of calculus in, in choosing to write books and about creativity and have a podcast. Uh, but when I looked at the, what I had, what limitations I had, uh, my tolerance for risk, uh, you know, I decided that this was w- probably, uh, one of the more impactful things that I could do that I would also enjoy doing as well, that, that being a factor as well. So I think there's a lot of other people out there who are creators. That's why they listen to this podcast. Uh, they have their own audiences. They have their own podcasts. They have their own blogs. Um, how would you encourage them to think about, quote unquote, I hate the word thought leadership <laughs> as a track and how they can be effective in that? Yeah. Well, I mean, to some extent, I'm in that track of being a, being, being a podcast host. Um, and as I was saying earlier, you can potentially get just a huge amount of leverage by sharing with thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, like really important ideas and information, uh, and moral values that, that otherwise they, they might lack. So if you're someone who can build up an audience, um, and an audience that will, uh, like listen to you when you say important things rather than merely entertaining things, then that's, uh, potentially really valuable. To say something, something else, uh, potentially interesting about that. I guess you have to make sure. So there's only so much attention in the world. Like people only have so many things that they can look at, so many things they can listen to in a given day. So you have to make sure that you're not just like spreading the word about something. You're not just, uh, you know, raising awareness about just anything, but it has to be better than what people would have been, uh, what, what their awareness would have been directed to otherwise. And, and, and in addition to that, actually, if you, if you have found a really important idea to promote, then you need to make sure that you're doing a good job of it, uh, that you're not like turning people off of it by kind of like explaining it poorly or like lacking any charisma or, or charm, uh, or like, or offending people in the, in the, in the process of talking about it. Um, so, uh, but because, because if you do that, then you can kind of poison the well, uh, against, uh, because if people hear about it in future and they're like, Oh no, this is that annoying person who like told me that. And they put it in this really objectionable, uh, contrarian way. So uh, I like that. Now I don't like that idea. It's going to be careful, like not to do harm. And if you're talking to lots of people, uh, and especially if you have like a wide range of audiences and, and you're maybe not getting feedback on how people are receiving your ideas, then, then it's possible, possible to, to, to leave things worse than, than, than when you started. I guess another is just for, for most people, like advocacy, advocacy careers are just like not a great fit. Like personal fit is, 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 is really important when, when, when you're choosing your career. Um, for some people, it's just, it's obvious that they have to go and do something kind of technical and mathy because that's where all of their strengths are. And, and for them, the idea of going on a public speaking tour is just an absolute nightmare. And yeah, it's, the ability to like hold people's attention to like speak, like explain really complicated ideas, uh, in, in a way that, uh, that, um, makes sense to people is, 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 uh, really difficult. And you have to like pay, pay attention to, to what your strengths are. So I, I don't recommend that if, if the idea of becoming an advocate uh, sounds horrible to you, then, uh, probably you should, you, you, you should feel free to, to, to ignore that. Another thing is just that there's like great opportunity. Like you have to compare it to your opportunity cost. 
And there's other great ways to have an impact other than advocacy, which, which I mentioned earlier. So I guess if you have someone who like has good opportunities to do advocacy, but might have even better opportunities uh, in, you know, science and technology or going into government uh, in a, in a, in a, in a quieter role. Um, so I guess if you're trying to maximize your impact, then you have to like weigh up potentially many good options and many options that, that they give, that give you leverage. But yeah, many listeners, uh, if they're creators, they, they are going to want to go out and, and, uh, make the world a better place through, through, through their art potentially, or yeah, through, through speaking. Um, I think try to like find ideas that you think are like really important and more important than what people would be hearing about otherwise. Um, and find a way to kind of, kind of connect with people. Something is that effective altruism, as you might be able to tell, <laughs> is kind of a very analytical thing. Uh, it's like, we kind of lack artists actually, uh, who are able to, to connect with people and potentially make ideas like, how do we ensure peace between the US and China? Or how do we make the long-term future go really well to make that really connect with people on an emotional level? Um, uh, for, for which like you might need, you know, visual design, like music, uh, like stories. Uh, we don't tend to tell stories very well. <laughs> uh, and so if you're someone who has the, that, that kind of ability, then I think you'd be extremely welcome and valuable in the, in the effective autism community to try to, yeah, fill, fill these gaps where just existing, like more mathy, economicsy people like me, uh, tend to, tend to really fall down. When people ask me to tell a story, I'm just like, Oh God, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I feel very cautious about this idea about being, uh, careful to not do it poorly, you know? Mm. And I wonder about that, like, and, and I'm biased because I'm always like, if you want to start creating something, give yourself permission to suck, put it out there, let it be bad, and that's how you'll eventually get good. And mm. certainly, I've been blogging for 15 years. You can go back and look at my first blog post. It's terrible. Now, I can't say for sure that I'm doing more more good than I am doing harm, but it does make me wonder like, if people are overly cautious about talking about things, does that cause, I mean, if there's too many people who are like that, and maybe there's a little bit of the Dunning-Kruger effect there too, mm. where like the people who are cautious about speaking are often the ones who actually know something, yeah. you know? So I'm like so reluctant to to agree with you on that one because I feel like, oh, people should be out there, uh, you know, Exploring sharing what they think and like having a conversation and actually being more open-minded so that maybe, well, I, maybe I'm being idealistic. So they're being, uh, they're open-minded enough to say like, yeah, that annoying person uh, said it in this way that I didn't like, but okay, I'll give it another shot. I don't know. That's idealistic, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. We, we got onto this because, um, Last year, we wrote an article. I think it was like a, how to avoid doing harm in your career. Mm-hmm. And we had all of these thoughts. And it was, it was so tricky to message because, uh, we don't want, like everything kind of sucks at first. We sucked at first. <laughs> Everyone has to like learn from experience to, but before things become good and, and convincing and like, and for the research quality to get high enough. And so when we were writing this article about how you can do harm in your career, uh, and how, that's that's a, a risk that people should be alert to. We didn't want to discourage them from like starting to work on, on on really important problems and kind of getting off the ground and yes, making mistakes, but learning from them. And and there absolutely is this also selection effect that kind of the people who are most likely to read an article about how to do harm with your career and be like, oh God, maybe I'm going to cause harm with my career. They're the kind of cautious, thoughtful people who you really want to be going into something. It's the reckless people who won't read that article or be like, doesn't apply to me. Uh, they're, they're the ones who you need to, <laughs> to discourage, but the article can't, can't achieve that goal. So we, we, we sat in a while and like massaged the wording a bit to try to, to try to tackle this. Um, I guess in terms of advocacy and I guess, and, and creatives, I suppose you maybe want to like scale up gradually. So you absolutely have to start 
start with something and it's probably going to be bad in some ways and then you have to get feedback uh, and improve it. But maybe what you want to avoid is doing things that are like extremely provocative or like are going to turn a lot of people off in a fairly predictable way that, that are like kind of designed to spread ideas by getting attention by annoying people, by being obnoxious. Which is very easy, which is very tempting to do because that's what gets you the page views and the, yeah. the retweets and, and all that stuff that you so much crave when you're yeah. creating things. So yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of a cheat code. Uh, if you just want to get attention, just say something super offensive to people and yeah, you'll get lots of attention, but uh, it's un- unclear whether it's helpful. Um, but kind of uh, build your audience over time as you get feedback on how well things are going and kind of, yeah, aim for an audience that, that's proportional to like how much effort you've put into, into making the thing good and, and, and convincing. It's also the case that you don't have to convince everyone. Like, you know, I've said some things in here that like some people might find provocative and it's not, not going to be to their taste, but uh, it, that's kind of unavoidable. I think being an authentic person and like expressing uh, real views and like actually trying to communicate something substantive, you can like, yeah, you, you can't make some people passionate about something without like turning some other people off. So you don't have to be cautious to, 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 to that degree. I think, I think people should aim to be more, yeah, authentic and like say what they think maybe more than, more than they currently do. But you also have to do it in kind of a thoughtful way. And I think not try to like, not, not go out of your way to offend people just to, just to get more attention. Yeah. And when you were talking earlier about, uh, there's only so much attention in the world and, uh, people can spend it in one place or they can spend it in another. I guess a switch really flipped for me that takes us back to the discussion we, we kind of started with, not the, not the nicotine discussion, but the discussion <laughs> about uh, the length of the podcast is that mm. once you've got somebody to start listening to the podcast, the bias is going to be that they're going to want to continue or finish the podcast. And so therefore, you have now taken a larger portion of their day that they, and for many people, would use in some way that was less yeah. good for them. Um, and so maybe it is better to have a, a long <laughs> podcast and just maximize the amount of uh, attention you're able to, yeah. to capture. I mean, I don't want people to neglect their jobs and their families and their children just listening to no, the 80,000 no, no, hours no. podcast uh, forever. But I think, so we allocate some time to thinking about kind of unintended consequences or like the unseen effects of, of, of people's actions. And one of these is it's a, a really obvious unforeseen consequence of kind of doing anything is that People have 24 hours in a day. Anything you kind of encourage them to do, they, they have to stop doing something else. And so you have to think, like, is this actually better than the opportunity cost? Um, it's, it's, it's not coming. Yeah. Time, time is limited. Attention is limited. Uh, it's not coming for free. You have to be doing something better than the background level. Um, and indeed, if, if you're like raising awareness about a problem that is real and serious and affects people, but is less important than what people would have been thinking about otherwise is like, say people can't do anything about it. So you're like raising awareness about a problem that they can't, can't help with. Or it's just like, it affects some people, but it's just like much smaller in scale and severity than some other thing that, that people might have had their attention drawn to. Then you're like easily causing harm. And I think, for example, the thing with straws is like this. And so is plastic bags. So is turning out lights. I could just like go through all of these examples of memes that have attracted a huge amount of attention, dominated so much effort. And, and if you then actually try to quantify how much good is, has it done? Mm-hmm. Just try to do the math. It's so small. It's so small. And, so th- yeah, it's, that's a sort of like advocacy that that's that's potentially harmful. Uh, if you're like, I could try to like just justify that if you're kind of skeptical on the on the plastic bag or or, or lights turning out lights thing. But I'm mean, I'm definitely on board with you of of opportunity cost loss yeah. because I mean actually kind of the you know one of the, the the secret motivations of the work that I do is to is that I, I believe so much in human creativity and I believe in in uh, the power of somebody following their creativity and creating things. And it's not just because the things that they create are are 
useful, but it's also because if they're doing that, they're not scrolling through Facebook. <laughs> they're not having arguments on Twitter. They're not uh, reading news that doesn't bring them any value. And at the same time, just the process of being creative, of doing that introspection that you have to do yeah. is going to cascade out into the rest of your life. Yeah. So I'm definitely on board with this idea of, you know, what would you be doing otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I'm a kind of social media power user a little bit. I like, po- like you know, promote my content on Twitter and on, and on Facebook and I like often you know, just, just like share, share my thoughts on there and see, see what people have to say. But, uh, you really have to like set limits. So you have to like find ways to control how much you're using it. So I like, I've never had the apps for Twitter and Facebook on my phone. Um, on the computer, I like use an extension in Chrome, uh, to make sure and, and Facebook, oh, sorry, Firefox to, to absolutely block the Facebook newsfeed so that I never see it and get distracted by it. I feel a little bit like one of those drug dealers that like is selling something, but like, but, but refuses to consume it. Oh, I, I like <laughs> that too. I mean, I, I block, I block the, the, the Facebook feed and I also have something that blocks recommended videos on, uh, YouTube, on YouTube and yeah. recommended follows on Twitter. Uh, it's actually called Undistracted, and it's not a very mm. popular extension. It, uh, I've talked to the guy on Reddit. He just recently made it, and it actually has a lot of controls for a lot of different things you can block out. So yeah, something for people to look out for. I think like me and other people have gotten more judicious about what kind of arguments they're willing to engage in. Although I suppose the people who aren't so judicious uh, just spend all their days on Twitter fighting with people. I, I, try, I came up with this with this new rule of thumb recently, which is, uh, you might have heard some rule of thumb about relationships, about how you have to say like five positive things for every critical thing you say to your partner. I feel like people should retweet like five things that spark joy in them for everything that they retweet that makes them mad. <laughs> and I think that would just like lead to a much happier world and like a, a happy happier Twitter community if people were like focusing on what's good rather than what's what's terrible. I've experimented with this. Uh, I had a no complaints day where I where I said uh, I just went to the grocery store and uh, there was food there and I <laughs> and I bought it and then I ate it. And it was it was delicious, wonderful. <laughs> I just uh, pulled this lever on the sink and water came out and it, I drank it and I didn't get sick and it was amazing. Yeah, uh, maybe we're getting a little bit trite here, but I I, I so agree. I um recently tweeted about the fact that I, I realized that um, I was kind of jealous of people who are like getting to go into first class on a plane. And they're like, oh, they get on and like they can, they can have whatever food they want. And like someone will pour them a thing of champagne and they got like, they got lots of space to like lean out. And I was like, actually, I realized I could do this every day in my house. I can lie down. <laughs> I can sit in a couch. I can watch anything that I want on Netflix. I can order in any food to my house. I can have some, some champagne if I want. Um, it's like every day in my house is better than being in first class on a plane. So, uh, you know, I should be like really grateful for that. <laughs> and King Louis the 14th couldn't have done any of that. So yeah. it's so easy to take everything for, for granted. But yeah, I guess to, just to slightly try to come full circle. Yeah. Our, our lives are just uh, so good that I think we, um, potentially have a lot of, we have a lot of slack resources. Um, at least some of us do that we can focus on trying to like help other people who don't have it nearly so good. Um, including, yeah, like animals that are suffering terribly, people in like very poor countries and people in the future who are at risk of getting really screwed over by the short-sightedness and selfishness of the present generation. That sounds like a a great uh, note to end on. I don't know if you have another final message to go along with that, but most importantly, where should people get more of you? Yeah, so uh, if you found this at all interesting, um, 
you should uh, sub- subscribe now to the 80,000 Hours podcast. I always feel bad when I have these conversations because like the issues that we're touching on, like nuclear war, war with China, um, uh, like yeah, diff- different methods for having an impact, population ethics, um, how AI might affect the future. These are like incredibly complicated issues, which, you know, we can only just barely touch on. But we have like several long, several hour long interviews on every one of those topics. Uh, we've got like Daniel Ellisberg talking about um, risk of nuclear war, Hilary Graves talking about population ethics, uh, Paul Cristiano, a very long conversation about uh, he's an AI researcher and kind of his vision of how AI might get deployed and, and how it could affect the future. So we've got, if, if you've enjoyed this, there's like a lot more, a lot more depth that, that you can go into on, on the show. There's also uh, 80,000hours.org. Um, maybe head there, uh, possibly subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get an update every two or three weeks on, on the new research that we've done. We've also got a kind of our, our key ideas page, uh, which we recently put up. Um, which uh, kind of summarizes all of our core ideas and then links you off to different articles that, that will allow you to, to, to learn more about those. Um, yeah, I think that's, uh, we've, uh, we've got profiles and different career paths. We've got like descriptions of kind of all of the different problems that we think are potentially really promising to work on. So yeah, ch- check out the website, check out the podcast. And if you've gotten this far in the podcast, you probably listened to long form. So <laughs> 80,000 hours podcast perfect is for perfect you. for you. For the, for the seven listeners who have stayed, stayed listening for this one. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm sure it's many more than that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Rob. This has been great. It's uh, been fantastic, David. I, I love your work. Hope you enjoyed that interview. We've now got a different hour long conversation with me on the neoliberal podcast. Just a reminder that neoliberalism in this context is an economically center to center left view uh, combined with social liberalism and social justice. So not Reaganism or Thatcherism, which is uh, what might otherwise jump to mind. This is a fairly advanced conversation, and the key topic is whether it's practical to positively affect the long-term future of humanity in a really targeted way. Here it is. Welcome to the show, Rob. Uh, thanks so much, Jeremiah. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, seeing this kind of new brand of uh, neoliberalism uh, take off on, on Reddit, and uh, I've listened to, to most episodes of the show, and it's, uh, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big fan. Oh, well, thanks. Um, it's been quite a ride. And if, if you have been listening, um, you know that we've kind of touched on effective altruism in some of our episodes before. We've done some episodes that are vaguely in that area, but we've never done an episode talking directly about the concept of effective altruism. We've talked to, um, Rob Mather, who's the CEO of Against Malaria Foundation. Um, we've talked with, um, several people who talk about the kidney crisis and donating kidneys. Um, but you are much more directly involved in that world than anyone else. So could you give an explanation of kind of what the effective altruist movement is and how you got started within that movement and, and kind of ended up where you are today? Hey, listeners, if you're already familiar with effective altruism and 80,000 hours, you might well want to skip forward 11 minutes here as I'm mostly doing scene setting in this beginning bit. Yeah, so um, the elevator pitch for effective altruism is that it's the, uh, the use of evidence and careful analysis to um, figure out how we can do the most good in the world, and then hopefully following through and actually doing some of those things with, with at least some of, the, of, of our time and money. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, being more specific, I guess effective altruism kind of aims to help people and animals or kind of yeah, sentient beings in, in, in the biggest way possible, um, which kind of either means helping more, more people or like helping the same number of people in a, in, in a more substantial way. And so it, it tends to have a bit of a focus on welfare. Um, but there's uh, there's a range of views that people have on, on what exactly it is to, to kind of flourish or, or have a high level of welfare. And I guess kind of some of the some of the things that people involved in the effective action community have uh, decided to, to work on in order to, to have a really really large impact um, include things like um, inventing kind of clean meat or like really excellent meat substitutes so that we can just get rid of factory farming and kind of the, the enormous amount of suffering that that entails. Um, kind of going into public service to say try to improve uh, international coordination between countries. 
and do things like lower the risk of a war between the US and China, that would be like super destabilizing for, for civilization and could, could take us very off track. Um, funding research into whether we should use gene drives uh, and like other biotechnology to, to eliminate uh, the mosquitoes that, that carry malaria and like, kill hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people each year. Um, and uh, also like researching how we can make um, really advanced and transformative uh, artificial intelligence uh, safe and aligned with, uh, with human goals uh, when it's ultimately deployed uh, into really important roles in society. So that gives you like uh, the high level summary and then some kind of uh, some specific cases of like how people have cashed that out into, into what they will actually want to do with their time and money. And, and how did you get involved within this movement? Uh, what's, what was your introduction into the EA movement and, and how did you end up at 80,000 hours? Yeah. So um, I've been involved since pretty early on in 2011 and 12, I guess my background was that um, as a teenager, I was really interested in, in philosophy and, uh, and moral philosophy specifically. Um, and I tended to take kind of the, the ideas that I encountered in that uh, re- really seriously, as I imagine quite, quite a lot of listeners uh, did as well. Um, so I spent a bunch of time, you know, uh, reading about different different schools of thought uh, in moral philosophy. Kind of uh, concluded that uh, t- to me it seemed like uh, utilitarianism or consequentialism of, of some form uh, was was by far the, the most persuasive. And uh, fairly early on, I think when I was thirteen or fourteen, I encountered the arguments for being vegetarian uh, through through Peter Singer, and, and, I, and I became vegetarian, and and also the arguments for giving away a substantial fraction of your money because as someone in the rich world, uh, you know, the benefit to you of spending that money is just potentially like a hundredfold uh, less than, than the benefit that someone might get uh, if, if they're incredibly poor and, and you would give it to them. Um, so, yeah, as a teenager, I was kind of donating some of my, my money um, of, of this kind of reasoning. Um, I transferred into economics, actually, as an undergraduate, I think in part because uh, it seemed like the, the, the field that was most interested in doing kind of quantitative analysis to to figure out uh, how it is that you can uh, do do the most good and, and try to c- compare things and, and reason it out. And then uh, around when I was graduating, um, the, there, there was a group in Oxford uh, that was trying to, to, to take these ideas and actually kind of build an organization and build a, build a community around them so that people could coordinate and share research and, and figure out exactly how they can have the largest impact. Um, and so, uh, yeah, about, uh, was it eight years ago now, I, I applied to uh, go and be a researcher at the Center for Effective Altruism uh, in Oxford. Um, and I've basically been with that organization in various different capacities uh, since then. And um, uh, one, of, one of the projects that it's uh, created is 80,000 Hours, uh, which focuses on the career career side of things. And uh, my, my, my job, uh, among other things, is to try to figure out yeah, what, what careers uh, people can take and yeah, what, what they can be doing with their work that, uh, that, that will allow them to have the, the largest positive impact on the world. So one of the things that I find interesting within effective altruism is that it's really, as a community, much more about a shared approach than it is about a shared conclusion. Because as you mentioned, there's people with an effective altruism who have very, very different ideas of what they should be doing. Everybody agrees we should do what do, maximize the good we're doing. Um, you know, if we're donating charity, we should be maximizing the impact that those dollars have. If we are you know, trying to work within a specific field to make the world a better place, we should try to maximize that impact. But they come to very different conclusions. So could you talk a little bit about the different camps that there are kind of within effective altruism? Um, there's kind of the, what I might call the concrete save someone's life from a disease this year camp. There's a, a very, a, a more abstract camp that's working to minimize long-term dangers that, you know, might be very small percentage-wise dangers, but 
perhaps on a, on a global catastrophic scale. Um, could you talk about some of the differences in approach there and, and why people come to those different conclusions potentially? Yeah, so I think it's absolutely right that we're, we're really quite unusual uh, as far as social movements go um, in basically only sharing a, a, a kind of set of principles and, and an approach rather than, than any shared set of conclusions about what people ought to do. Um, and of course, this that's uh, actually one, one way that we're quite similar to, to neoliberalism. It seems like uh, at least the, the current kind of instantiation of neoliberalism on the internet, um, people have a pretty wide range of conclusions on like exactly what policies are the good idea from uh, kind of fairly left wing, probably, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, some of them, uh, all the way towards uh, people who are quite libertarian, uh, because it actually is, I think, quite hard to figure out exactly what economic policies uh, do produce the best outcomes. And so if you're taking a pragmatic approach where you're just trying to kind of look at the evidence and figure out what, what's going to what's going to produce the best society, it's uh, it's not straightforward to answer that. And so the, the same is kind of true in, uh, in, in effective altruism, where um, trying to use analysis and evidence to, to figure out how we can do the most good. Uh, and unsurprisingly, people have come to a pretty pretty wide range of different conclusions, uh, and they end up focusing on kind of different problems that, that stand out as being attractive in, in, in particular ways. So yeah, well, one that a lot of people will be uh, familiar with is kind of evidence-based uh, global health interventions uh, in, in the developing world. Uh, so there's GiveWell was one of the earliest organizations that's kind of part of this effective altruism ecosystem. And, and since 2007, they've been trying to figure out uh, the, the most effective ways to kind of save lives or um, improve welfare for people who are, who are extremely poor um, in, in developing countries. Um, and within that, like one reason that that's very appealing is that it's uh, relatively easy to kind of quantify and understand the, the impact that you're having. So if you wanted to uh, really be confident that you were uh, having having a positive impact on specific people who you, who you can see um, and think that it, and, and be able to kind of compare this to um, interventions that uh, might help other people in the United States or, uh, you know, rich, rich countries or people that you're more familiar with. Then donating to, um, you know, give, give directly or to the Against Malaria Foundation, uh, looks, looks potentially pretty, pretty appealing. I, we say that it has a, a high level of tractability because it's easy to kind of collect evidence. And I think a, a second group that's uh, pretty prominent within effective altruism is people who, uh, are trying to, who, who are trying to help, um, factory farmed animals. Um, the reasoning being that uh, if you just do the math, it seems like there's just an enormous amount of suffering uh, that's, that's going on um, in, in factory farms. Um, unless uh, you think that uh, animals are unconscious um, or they like are extremely have, have very little uh, consciousness, which, which seems pretty unlikely. And that, that seems very interesting to me because that's actually getting into really baseline level ethical differences where, you know, there's there's almost no way to – argue your way out of that if um if one person thinks that you know animals are an ethical concern and one person thinks they're not i I suppose you could talk about tests that that are done to you know maybe prove some level of consciousness versus not but but on some level there's kind of like the the values you go in with are obviously going to impact what you think the most important thing is yeah, so you can kind of reach just just a roadblock where if one person is really confident that animals don't matter morally or, or they're not conscious, um, and someone else thinks that they do, and they've like they've shared all the information that they have, uh, maybe you just can't move beyond that. Um, I usually find uh, actually if you survey just the general public, uh, the vast majority of uh, people, like over ninety percent, do think that, that animals can suffer, uh, and um, like large, almost as large a fraction think that that's morally uh, undesirable, um, even if they don't like place you know quite as much uh, emphasis on that. Uh, as they as they do on human suffering, um, so I actually think mo- most of the time that's that's not the not, not the key issue that, that's going on there. Um, but even though people kind of say that they think it's bad uh, for factory farmed animals uh, to to suffer, um, very little money uh, goes goes to help um, 
uh, and again, yeah, tactical animals or, or wild animals uh, relative to just the, the sheer number and the sheer amount of suffering that, that they're experiencing. Uh, so people have thought that that's a potentially very neglected area where one can get a lot of leverage uh, by taking you know, low-hanging fruit that's available there that, that other people aren't deciding to take and, and therefore reduce a huge amount of suffering per, per dollar or per, per hour of work. Um, and there's this kind of underlying uh, issue here that uh, if you want to have a really large impact, then you kind of want to go where you can have uh, big marginal returns, which kind of requires you to go uh, for something that's being neglected by other people. If if you're if you go into an area that's already very crowded, where you know hundreds of billions of dollars are being spent, or you know a significant fraction of the workforce is trying to solve this problem, I guess potentially you know uh, education in rich countries might might look a little bit like that. Then it's um, much harder for one additional person to to, to move the needle. Uh, I, so there's quite a big. I partially on. wonder. I partially wonder whether you are referring to like the Mark Zuckerberg intervention, um, where he donated a very substantial amount of money to, I think, a school system in New Jersey, um, perhaps Newark, and they tested it after it's been five years now or something like that, and nothing has changed in Newark. The The results coming out of Newark are not any different. Yeah, I actually don't know a lot about that, that specific example. Um, but I think you might be able to kind of predict that that would be somewhat likely just from the sheer fact that um, like hundreds of thousands or millions of smart people are trying to improve education in the United States. And there's an enormous amount of like philanthropic and government money that goes into this project, which means that kind of if there was an easy way to do it, it probably would have happened already. And so someone else who's coming in and trying to trying to fix it, uh, kind of the, the, the odds are potentially stacked against them because they're just not going to be able to find amazing opportunities that, that someone else hasn't already taken. And so uh, you can see with uh, both Patrick animals and people in the developing world, there's kind of an argument that uh, people in rich countries don't get exposed to just how severe uh, poverty can can be in extremely poor countries, and also they tend to kind of morally neglect people who are further away from them, you know, geographically or, or culturally. Um, there's a bit of like moral blindness there, and so you can potentially have more impact by you know giving giving to charities in the that work in the developing world rather than the rich world, because other people aren't taking the the, the amazing opportunities that, that are there. So so the returns haven't been driven down. And likewise, people either through like moral error or just because their their attention hasn't been brought to it. Uh, tend to neglect the, the, the suffering that you can find in, in, in factory farms. And so there's like big, big returns that you can get by, you know, investing in clean meat or just uh, trying to persuade people uh, not, not to eat meat, uh, that they haven't been, um, that haven't been reduced by other people kind of crowding into that space and, and take, and, and doing what's, what's possible. And then, uh, perhaps, uh, the, the third classic, um, uh, problem area that is actually, uh, my main focus is, uh, looking for, uh, another group that is like very large, that, uh, has, has a lot of potential welfare or a lot of potential uh, downside to it. Um, that people are not terribly focused on, which is uh, future generations. So if just humanity manages to, to stick around for you know millions of years, uh, possibly hundreds of millions of years on, on Earth until uh, the point that the, the Earth is no longer habitable, then there's going to be you know something like a million times as many people uh, in, in the future as are alive today. Um, so if you if you place some moral weight on the, the welfare or the existence of future generations of people and animals and kind of what other whatever other descendants uh, humanity has. And it seems like there's this, yeah, but potentially the, the, the largest moral impact of, of our actions today uh, are uh, their, their impacts on future generations and kind of how many people that there are in the future and, and how, how well their lives go. Um, and again, you can see uh, people who are going to be alive in uh, a thousand years time or a million years time, uh, they can't buy things today. So they're kind of uh, neglected in our economic system and they can't vote either. So even though there's an enormous number of them in a sense, uh, they're not able to have very much influence over over the political process and the decisions that we make today, even when our actions today uh, would have a very large impact on them. Uh, and so, um, and additionally, people care somewhat about um, future generations. They kind of worry about their children, and so so they, we do make we do take some precautions to uh, try to make the future go better. 
For example, we've done some work to, to try to reduce climate change, though not nearly enough. Um, but uh, I, I think that just if you, if you do the math, then the, the scale of the issue of uh, future generations uh, is much larger than the share of resources that it's currently getting. And I think there's a, a really large returns you can get by trying to find things that we can do today that would have really persistent impacts over hundreds or thousands of years and uh, affect you know, a vastly larger number of people than, than uh, alive today and can, can be helped by us now. That's something I, I would definitely like to get into a little bit more in detail because I consider myself an effective altruist. Um, and I definitely gravitate more towards, I think, a different camp than you do. Um, I, I tend to be drawn towards the health intervention sides, the sides where th that are very much based around, you know, we've got really specific evidence about this specific intervention involving deworming programs or bed nets for malaria stricken regions or things like that. And as you said, you are very much focused on long term impacts of of, of different things like AI risk or climate change or, you know, catastrophic levels of, of war and conflict. Um, and so they're very, very different approaches. Uh, it, it strikes me, you know, if you are a long-termist, essentially you're somebody who's trying to maximize the chance that we become like an interstellar society, right? If you, if we're really thinking about like thousands of generations in the future and, and the value of all those lives, it, would that be an accurate statement? Um, well, the argument doesn't doesn't rest on that. Uh, kind of, as I said, if, if we merely remain on Earth with kind of current population uh, for as long as the Earth is habitable, then you still have a million to one ratio of kind of future generations versus the current generation. But it's true if if we can you know advance technology such that we can you know have much many more people on Earth and like have them have a much higher level of welfare than than humans do today, then that kind of strengthens the argument. And then if we can go out and uh, yeah, colonize space and take advantage of the like ten to the hundred times as many resources that there are uh, out. In the rest of the universe rather than Earth, then the argument becomes like much stronger potentially again. But I, I, I don't think that the argument rests on that entirely because uh, yeah, I, I think it would go through even if we uh, knew that we could never leave Earth. Okay. Um, I'd, I'd love to just toss a few things at you that, that I've thought about when thinking about some of these issues. Um, I don't know if they're new to you. I, I imagine you work in this field all the time, so you probably um, you've probably heard many of these things. But one of the reasons I gravitate towards the the more what I'll call the more proven um, interventions, and they tend to be in the medical field, is that I'm kind of hesitant to believe that we can really understand the impact we're going to have on the world on a 300 to 400 year time frame, uh, much less thousands of years. Um, you know, I, I try to think back retro retroactively. Would someone in the year 1700 be able to kind of rationally? deduce what would be the best for the year 2000 if if somebody in 1700s britain was trying to say what can i do that's going to make the world the best place it can possibly be by the year 2000 i wouldn't actually trust them to understand what they were talking about and i'm not sure that that you and i have any better idea about the year 2300 than than they would um so how would you think about that just having any confidence that we can understand the impact of of our actions a thousand years hence um yes yeah, so this is a kind of an important issue that, that we should dwell on for, for a little bit because i think it's it's one of the, the main doubts that, that that people have and there's a lot of kind of uh, argu arguments back and forth 
Um, just on the question of the person alive in 1700 and uh, whether they could figure out something that they could do which would be beneficial to us today, I think, I think there are uh, potential options there. So, so one would be that, um, that they could have simply thrown you know, more people and, and more money towards advancing you know, science, the scientific revolution, towards doing general research into science and technology or, or the Enlightenment. And because kind of ideas are cumulative and they, and they tend to stick around unless you have some sort of really terrible disaster, um, if we'd sped up science uh, in the past, then there's every reason to think that uh, today humanity would just have better science and technology and a better understanding of the world, and that that could potentially leave us in a, in a, in a better position. Uh, another option would be that they could realize that it's really important that uh, humanity not go extinct and um, kind of remain on track so it can do that kind of cumulative building of, of knowledge and institutions, um, and then think, well, what can we do that would that would um, uh, help with that? Uh, they could have done, you know, research into diseases, which were one of the biggest threats, or you know, trying to prevent wars in the past, which were again were one of the, the things that um, uh, posed the greatest risk of preventing kind of cumulative improvements. Um, or, or just stockpiled food in order to prevent uh, kind of famines, uh, and as kind of a generic safeguard against um, you know any kind of threats that um, you know advanced society might might face at that time. Um, but uh, looking looking at the situation that that we're in today, I think it's absolutely true that um, if, we, if we were sitting here and we're thinking. What, yeah, what, what can we do that would benefit people in uh, 20, uh, 2300? Uh, we don't want to kind of come up with a plan that involves like very specific things that are going to happen in 2300, uh, like specific uh, things, things that we're preparing for, or for for a specific scenario where someone's going to take a particular action because it's just it's so hard to forecast things even five years out, let alone uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of years out. But I think there are things that we can do now that would have uh, persistent impacts. Kind of, perhaps the most obvious one is that uh, if we had a nuclear war, say, it's pretty clear that that would have very long-term impacts, that that would um, make the world potentially worse for people who are alive in 2300, uh, if, if there's people around there um, at all, uh, after, after we have a, a really bad nuclear war. So preventing um, really, really large catastrophes or preventing human extinction very clearly has um, very persistent uh, impacts. And that's something that only we can do. Like We can prevent a nuclear war today. Uh, people in 2300 don't have the, the, the potential to, uh, to, to safeguard uh, the, the, the present so that they'll have, have better lives. So one of the counters to that, I would say, even if we had someone in the year 1700 who was quite far-seeing and they thought about things correctly enough to to understand that the biggest issues are, you know, we need to speed up technological advancement of society. We need to reduce the risk of catastrophic um, extinction-level events. I don't actually believe that people in the year 1700 would have come to those conclusions. I think it's much more likely that they would come to the conclusion that um, the best thing for the world is for England to colonize the whole world. Um, and we should do everything we can do to make that happen. Um, or we should, you know, spread the word of Christ um, and, you know, act like missionaries. And that's actually the best thing for the world. Mm. But, but even granting that they did come to those conclusions, I'm, I'm still doubtful that they would actually have done anything that that mattered towards that because we, we can actually see the history of rich people giving money to causes. And certainly there's some people who devoted their lives to invention, but it's not clear that they did it because they were motivated by altruism. They were probably just the type of person who did that or, or economically there was an incentive. We do see people who, you know, devote their lives to setting up some crazy commune out in the, you know, 1800s wilderness in the West and and everybody starves to death because their crazy idea for how society should work didn't work out. Um, likewise, if if we think about you know extinction events from the from the perspective of someone in the 1700s, 
I can very easily see their perspective being that, you know, the best way to prevent extinction is to make sure that we are all Christian. Everyone in the world is a Christian or everyone in the world is a Muslim. And then naturally there will be no more wars to fight and humanity will never go extinct. Um, so it's just, I, you know, I, I kind of am a long-term pessimist in the sense that I don't think, I think the future's pretty unknowable and maybe that's just kind of defeatist from one point of view, but I, I'm not sure that defeatism is wrong when you're trying to predict the future this far out. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about, about a few things there. There, there are some people in, in the long termist kind uh, of community who um, are somewhat pessimistic that at the moment we can choose uh, what, what the very best uh, opportunities to, to improve the future are. And actually, uh, one one um, option that they've identified is just to um, make money and then save it for a very long time. So put it into a kind of perpetual uh, foundation that would earn the real interest rate and grow, um, you know, over 100 or 200 years. And then um, kind of defer to, to people in the future uh, once we have a much better, once we've spent a lot more time thinking about this and researching uh, what things uh, can improve the future, uh, to defer to them and, and just give them many more resources than, than they otherwise have. So, so that's that's kind of an interesting an interesting approach that one could take if you were that pessimistic. I think that the general challenge that that we have is let's let's say that uh, you would agree with me that because the future could be so large that there might be so many uh, beings in the future. The kind of uh, the effects that we have on them are, are kind of the dominant uh, moral concern or, or the dominant moral effects of, of our actions. Then we have to try to figure out like what signposts or what what things can we change about the world today that are most likely to have a robustly positive impact on the future. And of course, once you're thinking about um, effects so far out, it does get hazier and it does get harder than trying to figure out how can we make the world better for for us today. Um, but to some extent, if, if you believe that the effects on the long term just are the dominant moral um, effects, then we can't get around this problem. Uh, so you, you can't get around it just by saying, well, I'm going to do evidence-based charity in the developing world. Because then the, the question becomes, well, what effect does you know, evidence-based um, charity or global health charity in the developing world have on the very long term on yeah, people who will be alive in hundreds of thousands of years? And that's a very hard question to answer. And it's not clear whether, whether those effects are positive or negative or whether they should be expected to be kind of more positive or negative than other things that, that uh, you can pick out, uh, which seem like they have kind of more, more predictable effects on, on how well civilization goes in the long term. So kind of some of the things that, that people have picked out, um, which seem uh, more likely than not, or it seems to give us kind of the, the best chance as far as we know now of uh, making civilization go well in the long term are things like improving coordination between people and between countries so that just generically we can uh, tackle problems that we'll face in the future, uh, things like climate change. Another one is uh, just preventing wars uh, and conflict in general. It seems like you know, a war between the US or, or China um, uh, or, or wars between like any major powers just seem more likely than not uh, to make the future go more uh, like worse rather than better. Um, and then there's also things like trying to uh, invent uh, kind of Technologies that will make future advances, which make humanity more powerful, <laughs> uh, more safe, uh, safer rather than uh, more, more dangerous. So an example here might be um, when we invented uh, nuclear weapons, it took us decades to invent uh, permissive action links, which are these kind of uh, uh, locks and codes that you put on the nuclear weapons to make sure that someone who steals them uh, can't just go and use them right away. Um, so they weren't actually rolled out across the entire U.S. like nuclear arsenal until uh, the late 60s or early 70s. And so one way that you uh, might hope to have a, a positive impact is to like find really dangerous technologies that, that we might invent, things like future nuclear weapons, 
and invent things like uh, permissive action links that would prevent them being abused uh, before those technologies are invented, or at least before they're, before they're scaled up. So that's the kind of thing that, that people are thinking about sometimes with advances in biotechnology or artificial intelligence. So I'm, I'm about to say something entirely crazy, so I hope you'll forgive me. Um, yeah. I wonder what kind of models or, or evidence we use to determine that a certain thing is bad. And I'm going to use the most obvious example just to say, just to kind of prove my point. I guess that it's very, very difficult when you're thinking on 10,000, 100,000 year timeframes to really understand whether something is bad or not. Um, who's to say that a nuclear war wouldn't be okay in the end? Um, and that's the crazy thing that I hope you'll forgive me for saying. No, but, no, no, totally. You should, but, you, you, know, you, should, it, you should definitely embrace this, uh, this line of thinking. <laughs> this is the official neoliberal stance. <laughs> um, no, but uh, really, just this is kind of contrarian, but what if the best future for humanity involves having some, like, small-scale nuclear war that then turns all of humanity permanently against nuclear weapons and nuclear power forever, and then we all, you know, uh, about a billion people die – but we all live in peace for literally a hundred thousand years after that. Obviously there's, there's no way to test whether that would actually happen, but I guess that extends into the question. Is there any way to kind of rigorously model any of this or are we just kind of stuck at the, the theorizing stage? Yeah. So, um, the, the philosophical question that you're raising is the problem of uh, cluelessness, um, which we've discussed on the 80,000 Hours uh, podcast with, with philosophers uh, a few times. And it's kind of this, this challenge that uh, it seems like our actions likely have very large effects on the long-term future, and we should expect that uh, they may well be uh, positive or negative, and that maybe we could predict this if we were smarter and able to do better analysis. But it just um, is extremely hard to, to figure out what those effects are going to be. And so in a sense, we're clueless clueless about the kind of the moral consequences of our actions, about the most important moral effects of our actions. And I think this is, uh, if I was going to make an argument against uh, doing long-termism or like working on the long-term future, then this is probably the, the, the line of argument that, that I'll pursue. But um, so, and, and, and I think you're right that uh, in as much as we're trying to make the present better, then we can rely a lot more on kind of empirical data and just going out and, and, and looking at the effects of our actions now to figure out what, what, is, it, what is making things better. But in as much as you're trying to take actions today that will have, um, that you hope will make the world look better in decades or centuries time, we kind of do have to rely on our theory or our just general understanding of the world in order to try to assess whether, um, the, the impacts are more likely to be, to be positive than negative. And sure. when it comes to kind of nuclear war, um, I guess one, I think that one just can try to like come up with arguments for like, if there's a nuclear war, uh, here's ways that that could be positive. Uh, and here's ways that that could make the future go go badly, uh, go go worse. And then just try to use your kind of common sense or use your use careful analysis to figure out whether you think, on balance, um, nuclear war is likely to make the future better or worse. Now, it's true you're never going to with that kind of thing. You're never going to be super confident uh, about whether uh, whether you have gotten the right answer. It could be that kind of a nuclear war is like. 60% likely to make the future go worse, but 40% likely to make it go better because, as you say, it might turn the world against nuclear weapons. It might cause us to become like much better at coordinating against some some worse uh, risk in, in in future. So, so one, one yeah, one can imagine futures in which uh, scenarios in which a uh, nuclear war uh, makes makes things uh, better rather than worse. But I don't think that um, we're clueless quite to the extent where kind of everything is 50-50. 
Whereas like we, we're just absolutely indifferent about whether there's a nuclear war in terms of its long-term effect. Sure. Are, are you familiar with the Drake equation? Um, yeah. So I, I wonder part of the reason, I, I think part of the thing that would help me become more of a long-termist as opposed to, you know, the, the short-termist do a definite amount of good for sure in the short term rather than a hazy amount of good in the long term is if there was at least some model like that where, you know, for, for anyone who's not familiar with the Drake equation, the Drake equation essentially tries to answer whether there is alien life in the universe or not. And again, that's this giant unknowable thing, but they literally, they break it down into very discrete chunks of number one, how many star systems are in the universe. And number two, what percentage of them are in the right phase um, to have planets of a certain size. And number three, how many of those planets are there? And number four, what percentage of all these planets might have life? And number five, or, or might be hospitable to life? And number five, what percentage of planets hospitable to life are going to develop life? And it just kind of goes on and on and on. And it, it basically tries to quantify at each step what is going on for each of these things. And, and eventually, if you have probabilities and numbers, you might get a reasonable estimate for whether or not there's alien life in the universe based on all these parameters that you're estimating. So it's at least it's a starting point. And for something like, you know, the risk of nuclear war in the future or, you know, the risk of AI intelligence going haywire, um, I would love to see some sort of Drake equation style analysis to to kind of quantify the discrete risks and the discrete steps involved of like what might actually go wrong. In terms of causing a nuclear war? Well, just in terms of, you know, here's, here's the model we have. We think that mm. a nuclear war would affect, it is affect, it requires these four inputs. The likelihood of input one is this percentage. The likelihood of input two is this percentage and input three is this percentage yeah. and so on. And then it would have this amount of impact on average based on these three factors and it would last for this amount of time and the, you know assuming population to statistic you know, kind of just some sort of estimate that you know again you're, you're still throwing kind of wild guesses at a few of these variables so if you're talking about kind of um, an analysis of the kind of the probability of nuclear war looking at all the things that would lead up to it um that, that's been done and we could potentially link to some some papers that try to estimate the probability uh, using kind of the method that, that, that you're suggesting um, if you're thinking about kind of a careful analysis of what effect would, would nuclear war have, I guess I don't know of um, something like, like specifically doing that, although I know people who've thought about it a bit and, you know, written up arguments, although they probably haven't put concrete numbers on it. Kind of, I think the people who are leading the way in terms of uh, doing this research are two, uh, two research institutes at the University of, of Oxford uh, called the Future of Humanity Institute um, and the Global Priorities Institute. And basically, they're, they're trying to build uh, kind of an interdisciplinary uh, research field in which we try to answer questions like this. We try to figure out, yeah, how important is it to prevent nuclear war uh, as compared to, to other things that could uh, go uh, go well or badly in, in the future? Um, and like, do the do the best thing, the best that we can of estimating what consequences uh, these different uh, uh, these different kind of intermediate outputs that we could try to affect uh, would would have. And it's it's absolutely like very difficult work. But I think if uh, if you think like me, <laughs> again, if if you've got kind of this ratio of like a thousand to one or a million to one in terms of just like the the, 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 the scale of the impact that you can have in terms of the, the long term versus the, the present day, then you might be willing to accept substantially less confidence about whether the intervention uh, that you're working on, like trying to prevent nuclear war, 
um, you might be willing to like accept a lot of um, uncertainty about the exact effect that that's going to have uh, in the hope of uh, in, in the hope that that's kind of compensated for by the fact that if you are right about it and if you succeed then you'll have this like very large leverage because there's so many beings that you're that you're having an impact on yep and it's it's odd for someone who's trying to minimize risk so much um, that you ironically I view you as more of a risk taker in your um, altruistic actions that, you know, I, I like knowing that I donated this amount of money and I can be statistically sure that X amount of people were saved from malaria. Um, you know, whereas oddly enough, I actually think that that's, that that's not correct. Um, because, uh, at least again, if you buy the premise that kind of the effects on the very long term are what really matters, then you're taking this huge gamble that kind of <laughs> the charity that you're doing in the developing world is going to have a positive effect on the, on the long term. Uh, which is just, uh, well, I just, I think it's, it's a gamble kind of as much as, as, uh, my, my gamble that kind of preventing nuclear war, or preventing war between US and China is going to have a positive effect. I mean, it's true that literally, you know, if I decide to ignore altruism altogether, that's also a gamble in a sense. Any action that we take can be seen as a gamble about the long-term future, but I would, I would view both of us as taking somewhat unknown actions, but me with a more known constant on top of it. But, um, but that's that's kind of the long term versus short term view, and I've I've pestered you about that enough. So I'd love to ask, I'd love to turn us to a different area, um, to kind of effective altruism and politics, because most people in effective altruism are, are kind of people who love to talk about philosophy and politics, but you don't often see those two fields intersect. So I guess the question I would ask would be: Is political policy a good field to work in if you care about effective altruism um number one just yes or no is that something that should be prioritized and number two if somebody is going to be working in policy and they're just saying you know i'm passionate about politics this is what i want to do with my life what priority areas or, or what issues would an effective altruist say they should focus on yeah i think the the answer is pretty clearly yes um, that going in and working on uh, policy and kind of government budgets uh, and, and regulatory policy um, is potentially an extremely high leverage uh, way of improving both the present uh, and, and the future. And you kind of, uh, I think you can just see that by doing just looking at the ratios between kind of the number of uh, actors that you have in politics and government and kind of the amount of power that they have in terms of budgets that are getting moved and uh, like influence over society uh, through regulation. Um, the ratios do just spit out that um, going into government potentially gives you the equivalent of, you know, donating hundreds of thousands or kind of millions of millions of dollars uh, through through the effect. Admittedly, the like high risk, <laughs> the high risk effect that you have over over what governments uh, end up doing. And additionally, for, for me as a as a long termist, um, it seems like many of the of the most important uh, issues uh, for, for for us in terms of trying to change the long term future kind of run through um, what governments are deciding to do and, and how they make decisions. Uh, so if you're interested in like preventing war and conflict and like making sure that technology isn't used to, to destroy things, then you're really going to want to go into kind of military policy or foreign policy. Uh, it's going it's to be hard to have an impact uh, without without uh, working through the government uh, at some point. If you're interested in kind of speeding up research and development of particular technologies in order to improve the future, then there's you know large government <laughs> grants available to, uh, to to fund uh, science and science and research if you can convince people that that's worth doing. Um, but this, I think this also is true if you're um, focused on uh, reducing uh, poverty or improving health in the developing world. Um, people who've gone into uh, aid policy or yeah, tried to improve um, government policy in terms of trade or immigration towards the developing world, uh, there's just uh, quite a lot of success stories there. Um, and I, I think basically 
we, we often kind of compare going into government to just going and trying to make money and then donating that uh, to to effective projects. Um, and I think if you run the numbers, going going into government just does look like it has a pretty high expected returns. It's true that kind of 99% of the time, uh, maybe you, you won't get the outcome that you want, but kind of 1% of the time, you'll have this really enormous impact by getting a piece of legislation through. And that means that in, that in expected value terms, uh, government is uh, yeah a, a pretty high leverage approach. Is there any particular area of government that you would recommend focusing on if you were talking to someone who was fairly open-ended about what area of policy they wanted to work on? I know there's one that I have in mind, but um, but I'd love to ask you first so that I don't prejudice your answer. Yeah, so I guess uh, as, as you can probably imagine, I'm really interested in international relations and international coordination uh, to just put humanity in a better position to, to deal with all of the challenges um, and the coordination problems that we're going to, to, to face in the future. So I guess um, I imagine that quite a lot of people listening are focused on uh, economic policy and trying to, to grow GDP. Uh, it's just a, a, a big topic for, for neoliberals. And as somebody who studied economics, it's like a big, big interest of mine as well. Sure. But I, but I suspect that um, that area is kind of less neglected uh, than some others. Just a lot of people in society and a lot of people in government policy are trying to figure out how we can improve economic efficiency uh, and productivity. Um, and often where, where you find... Um, you know, ways that we could do better, for example, by uh, allowing immigration or having more trade or, you know, getting rid of occupational licensing, all things that I think are, are excellent ideas. Um, there aren't actually really easy wins uh, there because people have been trying to do that for a long time. And in cases uh, where uh, we haven't succeeded so far, that's because there's impediments like, you know, voters don't support it or there's you know, important lobby groups that are, that are campaigning against those things. So I think that, that the tractability of, of improving economic policy um, isn't so amazing. And also it's, it's uh, the leverage that you get um, on the long term, on the trajectory of long term civilization uh, through improving economic policy uh, doesn't seem so great to me because it is uh, quite hard to um, estimate the effect of you know, higher economic growth rates on, on the very long term. Yeah. So and, and I know this is something you've talked about with Tyler Cowen. Um, the you know, Cowen makes the argument that the greatest impact is coming from long-term economic growth and therefore we should attempt to maximize that above anything else um i i i've suspected you might say international relations if i had to give an answer it would probably be um support for immigration and open borders on some level or another just because i do think the leverage point is well taken there's a lot of people who care about this issue but the size of the potential gain there is potentially enormous um, you, you know, as, as neoliberals, we talk about trade and immigration all the time, but we already live in a pretty free trade world. The, the gains from freeing up the rest of that trade are honestly not very big. Um, that, yeah, we, we don't live in a high tariff world anymore. The gains from increased immigration are enormous to the level where I think if you could get higher cultural acceptance of immigration or better immigration policy, even with the fact that we're already throwing people at that, there's still the 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 pie is big enough that you might still be able to get some very high out outcomes out of that. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, if I was trying, yeah, if my goal was to increase GDP growth, then um, increasing immigration would, would would definitely be on on the table. Actually, let, let, let me put this uh, this one to you, Jeremiah. So. Uh, that some of the altruistic actions that you're uh, most enthusiastic about, uh, yeah, donating to kind of proven uh, global health charities. Um, what do you think about um, the option of uh, taking kind of a higher risk option and going into kind of uh, policy in the developing world to try to encourage better economic policy so you get faster economic growth? I think if you just look at like the insane returns uh, that were gotten through like, uh, reforms in China, just uh, the amount of economic growth and um, 
improvements in, in health and well-being that, that were unleashed by that. I think uh, even if you think that you're, the likelihood of you, um, you know, creating an outcome, anything like that, or the, the probability of you affecting you know, economic policy in Ethiopia or Nigeria uh, was fairly low, uh, just that the scale of the wins that are available there uh, by improving, that, you know, offering more free markets or you know, better education policy or better health policy or, or whatever else, um, that the scale of the win there is so large that um, you, if, if you're willing to take a risk, then it seems like the expected value there uh, could, could well be higher than, than doing kind of uh, proven interventions. Yeah, this is something I talked about with Ari. We, we talked about, you know, what, is, what are the next hundred years going to look like and what are the, the trends that are going to impact that? And, you know, Ari goes around and talks to people about this a lot and they always ask him about technology and he always sits them down and, and tries to tell them technology doesn't matter. You need to care about culture. Um, because something like if you could get a 10% gain in education for women in Africa, you know, and that would be to my mind more significant in terms of guiding the future and impacting the future than any individual piece of technology could than talking about flying cars or Bitcoin or, or this or that, you know, whatever people have going on. So that, that's something I'm very receptive to that idea that small nudges, if you could just influence the future of Africa by a couple percentage points, um, that could be enormously influential. One of the people who I really appreciate working in that space is Mark Lutter. And I know you know Mark. Um, yeah. And he's, you know, trying to improve governance and, and kind of experiment with governance structures in the third world to see if there can be better solutions. You know, it's kind of a, a high risk, high reward play. So that's, that's one area where, yeah, I, I definitely support what Mark Lutter is doing in terms of high risk, high reward type of action where maybe we end up with a really big win and we can improve governance in a lot of places. Yeah. I think, um, another general intervention that I'm pretty excited about is just trying to improve institutional decision-making, uh, kind of in, in governments, um, around the world in across all kinds of different areas. And which is, which is a bit, a bit of a vague thing to say, but, but I think, uh, one of the options that seems uh, most exciting now, one of the examples of someone who seems like they've really moved the needle is, uh, Philip Tatlock, who's been, you know, spent decades uh, doing research to try to figure out how we can more accurately predict the future. Uh, so he's done these enormous tournaments, as uh, many listeners will, will be aware, uh, trying to figure out kind of what habits of thought, uh, allow people to accurately predict the future, and uh, which, which habits of thought, uh, cause people to uh, just make extremely inaccurate forecasts. Um, and it seems like there's been a decent amount of, of take up, uh, on using kind of the, the, the lessons from that social science, um, in, you know, organizations like the U.S. intelligence services and, and the military and, and, um, uh, the, the, the foreign service there. Uh, and I think if, if we could just find, yeah, better ways to, um, aggregate knowledge between people, uh, and to, uh, yeah, have better foresight into what's going to happen in, in the future and like what the effects of our actions would be, uh, that seems like a, a pretty, uh, general way of uh, changing of, of improving the world today that I expect would you know uh, have real dividends uh, in, in in the long term and both like yeah both improve decision making in as much as it affects people alive today and improve decision making in as much as it um, affects uh, future generations. So one question I wanted to ask that in researching this episode the, the concept came up to me that there's there's kind of two ways to be an effective altruist. There's the first way and the most obvious way which is to go after the issues that you care about, whether that's, you know, long-term risk of war and extinction, whether that's animal suffering, um, whether that's malaria in the third world. The second way is to essentially evangelize effective altruism itself and to do nothing about any of those causes, but just to assume 
if I can be an advocate for this and get a hundred other people to care about it and to become effective altruists, that will actually be a better use of my time than any other individual cause because I will have created a hundred me's. Um, so I wonder about, you know, it, a lot of the people who come to 80,000 hours are probably already very deeply inside the EA community. Um, they're already thinking about how to maximize the returns on their efforts. Is there an argument that people like 80,000 hours or, or organizations, I'm sorry, like 80,000 hours should spend more time evangelizing to the public at large rather than trying to influence people who are already bought in to, to the EA movement? Um, yeah, so, so there's definitely a case that, uh, for some people at least, that the highest impact thing that they can do is spread important ideas, kind of engaging advocacy that then shifts what other people do and kind of gives you more leverage because, you know, one person might change the behavior of a thousand people, um, which is like, and get them to do kind of the direct work that, that um, they would have otherwise done, but you've got like many more resources by, by, by shifting many more people, which is kind of the reasoning behind uh, 80,000 hours that um, uh, Will, Will McCaskill and, and Ben Todd uh, were we're trying to figure out like what they should do in their careers. I think back in back in 2011, just as they were graduating, um, and so they started doing a bit of research, and then they uh, realized when they gave a presentation or two that many other people were saying that they were going to change uh, their, their their career plans just on the basis of like only a few weeks of research that, that they uh, that they had done. And they realized, wow, we could potentially get this enormous leverage by just doing this research ourselves, and then getting thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, possibly even, of other people to, to go and do the high the really high impact things that, that we identify. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely, definitely a logic behind that. And we, we call these meta causes. Um, so you've kind of got the, the things that help directly. And then you've got, uh, meta things like, yeah, advocacy, promoting, promoting that, that kind of work. And also, um, the meta cause of research. So trying to prioritize uh, different things and figure out which, which ones uh, do, do the most good. Obviously, you kind of have to mix these things together. Uh, it would, effective altruism would seem like a very odd social movement if just everyone was promoting these ideas. Uh, and whenever you recruited someone, you just got them to go out <laughs> and, and spread the word. Uh, and you had absolutely no one actually trying to do anything directly. And I think we'd miss out on a lot of opportunities uh, to kind of learn what works and yeah, what, what methods are actually practical. And also to figure out whether effective altruism is a school of thought uh, actually can function in the real world, uh, whether, whether these ideas can, can be applied. But yeah, I think, I think that there should be a balance. There should be some people who are doing research to help other people have more impact. Some people spreading a word to help other people have more impact by making sure that they become aware of um, higher impact options. Um, but we, we also need to have some people actually go out and, and, and do, the work, uh, do the work now. Yeah. If I had one main criticism of the EA community, just because it's a community that is actually very welcoming of self-criticism, um, I would say that they self-criticize too much. That would be, <laughs> that would be my main criticism in that I think that there's too much time spent trying to maximize the actions of people who are already in the 99.9th percentile of like caring about the future or caring about, you know, the global poor. Um, and too much time trying to maximize people who are already pretty good and not enough time trying to spread to the other, you know, 99 out of 100 people who have never heard of this. Um, yeah. So, so, so we both agree and disagree with that. Um, I think that, that there can be a phenomenon where when it's fashionable to uh, engage in kind of self-criticism or to um, yeah, find fault with what you're doing, that people can end up wasting a lot of time just finding problems um, uh, with their organization or with particular people uh, and not kind of focusing on their strengths and finding better ways to just implement the projects that they kind of decided to do. Instead, you get yeah, in this cycle of like constant feedback and, and, and criticism and trying to reassess and do uh, you know, re-strategize because things aren't perfect. 
Uh, when sometimes actually you just need to focus on getting shit done and you have to accept that kind of any plan is going to have problems. Uh, but at some point you have to get your hands dirty. But I think um, I, I might disagree with, with the general idea that like if, if someone's kind of at the 99th percentile of, of impact, um, that it's not worth trying to um, get them to the 99.9 percentile. And I think uh, the reason here is that uh, that would be true if you imagine that kind of the distribution of impact of different actions is kind of a normal distribution. Uh, such that uh, the difference between the 99 and 99.9 percentile is kind of significant, but like not enormous. But I actually think that it's likely that kind of the, the distribution of effectiveness of different actions is more like a log normal distribution or a power law. So it's so a very fact distribution such that like the difference between the 99 and 99.9 percentile could be as large as the difference between kind of the 70, 70th percentile and 90, uh, 99th percentile. Um, that kind of as you get like as you get into like more and more effective uh, cause areas or more and more effective approaches of, of tackling them, uh, you can potentially you know ten uh, extra impact uh, by finding uh, a better leverage point um, for, uh, on which to try to lean to to say improve the long term future or try to find you know a health intervention that it costs a tenth as much as something else but, but has the same impact on, on people's health. Um, now I think you can kind of take take that argument too far. Uh, but I think it is true that people should kind of always be on the lookout for um, ways that they can uh, have uh, more impact and uh, shouldn't shouldn't settle at least for for very long periods of time in, into one thing just because that's what they've been doing been doing so far. All right. Well, we're coming up on time. Um, I've been trying to poke holes in a lot of your long term arguments because we are a little bit on opposite sides here, and and you've done a pretty good job responding. I, I think it's only fair if I ask you if you've got any. Um, any hot takes about what neoliberals typically do or, or kind of the short term altruism that, that I'm a fan of, whether it's malaria nets or, or donating my kidney. If you have any hot <laughs> takes about, you know, whether those are ineffective or, or not as effective as, as they should be or anything like that. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you two. Um, I just, the first one I've kind of alluded to, which is just that, um, you know, the global economy is like a hundred trillion dollars. Um, and kind of $60 trillion of that goes out to people to try to create more GDP as like a rewards for labor, uh, for, for their effort. And so just a lot of, uh, a lot of resources are already going into trying to find ways that we can increase productivity, uh, that we can increase the amount of yeah, industrial output or the amount of services provided. Um, and so I suspect that is just not going to be a, an extremely high leverage uh, way of improving the world. What you really want to do if you want to have a really outsized impact is find something where there's a colossal kind of market failure, where the market just has no reason to really provide uh, this, this thing at all, like preventing war between the US and China. There's not really like much of a business model there. Uh, so it can just go largely unprovided by, by the private sector. And then hopefully something also where um, the public, there's a, a government failure where like voters aren't paying attention to this issue or bureaucrats don't have time to think about it. And so the government is not providing it either. Sure. Or, or is struggling to dedicate resources to it. So, um, yeah, I, I think like there's a lot of kind of long, yeah, options in terms of long termism and what technologies we develop that, that uh, fall into that bucket where the private sector and the public sector and so, and at least so far, kind of the charitable sector have not really focused on it. And there's like really large leverage you can get. And I think to some extent, neoliberals by focusing on uh, like well worn policy issues, yeah, like trade or the, or the minimum wage or, um, or zoning, even though I kind of agree with the, with people on the object level. Uh, and not finding really neglected uh, options where there's where there's huge huge wins. Um, I guess the other one was yeah, I, I saw that you are uh, donating your, your your kidney, which is um, pretty awesome. Uh, were you inspired to do that by um, D D Dylan Matthews? Uh, yeah, Dylan Matthews, Alvin Roth's book, uh, Who Gets What and Why, and um, and just watching videos on YouTube. Honestly, having the emotional connection was also a, pr a significant part of it. Yeah, so I, I considered doing this, I think, uh, six or six or seven years ago. Uh, I think yeah, partly inspired by um, 
Dylan and, and some some other people uh, when you had done it. Um, someone uh, Alex Alex at um at Gibwell who did it uh, ten years ago and got got us got us talking about it a lot. Um, and I I also have to say um, the issue of kind of policy around the kidney donation uh, and kidney markets is one of these things that even though I don't think it's a super high leverage policy issue to to work on because it's just going to be so hard to change. Um, it makes me incredibly mad that we just can't uh, can't compensate people or can't just pay people outright to to donate their kidneys. It seems like you know we could save a hundred thousand lives uh, very quickly if we just allowed people to, to sell their kidneys and get proper compensation for it. And I think in the vast majority of cases it would be a win 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 because someone's life would be extended a great deal, um, and the seller would receive you know fifty thousand dollars or something like that, which is like much less than it costs to to run the dialysis. So I imagine a lot of listeners are kind of familiar with this. Uh, like I. Yes, um, it's a shame that kind of you're, you're having to, to, to donate it in this way. You're kind of just making up for a really serious uh, policy failure. Um, but, but I ended up deciding actually uh, not to not to donate my my, my kidney, um, in part because I, I did the math and I was thinking. So it seems like you have to take a week or two off work, right, uh, when you donate your kidney, and, and I think the risk of dying or having a serious injury is something like one in a thousand. It's about one in ten thousand if you have uh, uh, low, well, not low blood pressure, if you don't have high blood pressure. Okay. Okay. So that's that's a bit lower than I remember. Um, but yeah, how much how much time are you going to have to take off work? And I suppose uh, roughly what yeah. is your salary? As so well? you can I, maybe see the, see the reasoning that I'm heading towards. Yeah, I, I anticipate the reasoning that you know the the time the money you could make might actually have a a better impact rather than just donating the kidney. Um, luckily, I I'm in a position where I'm in a salaried role, so my okay. my income will not decrease as a result of being out. Um, and actually, there's there's um been a change recently where I think under federal law starting in September, um, this is something Josh Morrison at Weightless Zero I know has been working on. He's been on the show before. Um, I believe starting in September, federal law says that all lost wages will be reimbursed for uh, organ donors. Um, so, wow. so that's potentially a way to get around this, um, this issue of, you know, you might be losing out on five, ten thousand dollars of salary, which could actually do more good in the world um, than than just your kidney. That's that, that's fantastic. A, a step towards sanity. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's honestly one of those areas that that I think of when you talk about you should go work in policy because if you hammer away at a difficult problem, you might actually end up making an impact. Um, I know Josh estimates. It, Israel put in some law a, a few years back, maybe five or ten years back. I forget where. Um, that you get eight weeks of like paid leave if you donate a kidney in Israel. And it's like, no questions asked, eight weeks paid leave. And I think their donation rate went up like 33% or something like that. So yeah, it, it's weird that, you know, things like how many weeks of vacation do I get will impact, um, <laughs> donating an organ, but people make decisions on the margin. You know, it's weird to think about, but they do. So, um, so anyway, that's, that is an interesting take, though, and and I can see where you're coming from there. Um, yeah, so, so so I think I did the math, and I was like, well, I have to take a week or two off work, uh, during which time I could certainly, I think, with that amount of work, kind of move more than $3,000, which is roughly the cost of saving a life. Um, and I guess, yeah, the, the calculation is a little bit difficult because you've also got to think about kind of quality of life in like one country versus another. And also, you, you know, if you're saving a life uh, from malaria, the person's probably going to be a lot younger than the person whose life would save uh, from, from kidney disease. Um but, uh, yeah, I'm curious to know whether you did any kind of calculation like that to try to figure out whether donating your kidney was uh, was kind of the highest effect thing that you could do with that amount of time or, or, or suffering relative to other options. I didn't, but I was also kind of assuming that I wouldn't actually lose much salary. So, um, 
So that's part of it as well. Um, we have come up on time, but I really enjoyed this discussion and, um, thank you for coming on, Rob. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been, a, been a great pleasure. Um, it'd be interesting to see how the neoliberal movement uh, advances and I, and I guess effective activism as well. And I know there's a lot of people within our group who are very, um, sympathetic to the EA movement and I'm sure they'll be interested in this. Yeah, was, the, some, some of the topics we talked about here is kind of hard to do justice in a, in a single hour. So if you're interested to hear more, um, uh, maybe subscribe to the 80,000 Hours podcast. Um, we have uh, really long conversations on there sometimes about these issues like yeah, what effect would nuclear war have on the future and how can we get around this cluelessness problem about the, the long-term effects of our, of our actions. I think our longest episode so far is a four-hour long interview. Um, yeah. So yeah, if you, if, if you enjoyed this, there's, there's more of it. Yep. Uh, so subscribe to 80,000 Hours if you haven't already. Lots of good content there. And we will see you next time. Thanks so much for sticking through both of those interviews. If you'd like to give me uh, some feedback, you can do that at rob at 80,000hours.org. Just a final quick reminder about our impact survey. You still got a day or two left in the annual impact survey period to fill out this episode after I expect it to come out. The information you'll provide is uh, incredibly helpful uh, to us in understanding our impact and figuring out how we can improve 80,000 hours. So you can access it at 80,000hours.org slash survey or the link in the show notes. The 80,000 hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.